this episode, Justice League America, number 26, and Justice League Europe, number 2, cover dated May 1989. Hello, and welcome to the 26th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I am your host, folks, but I'm not doing this alone, thankfully. I'll be joined by two friends today to help me cover these issues, and we're going to chat with my second co-host a little bit later. But for now, my first co-host today is a man of extremes, and I don't mean 1990s. He is a podcaster who chooses to tackle some of the best comic books ever published, as well as some of the worst comic books ever published. He's a former school teacher, which is an admirable career choice in and of itself, but he taught middle school. And as a parent of a seventh grader myself, I think this man deserves combat pay. And in addition to all of that, he is one heck of a great podcaster and a nice guy and a parent himself. On social media, he and I always seem to like the same stuff. It feels a little bit like a brother from another mother. I guess we'll find out today. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Sean Ross. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Sean. Thanks for being here. How you doing? I'm so excited. Thank you so much for having me. I started podcasting about four years ago, and it has been my dream to be on the Fire and Water Network. And and I mean, sure, in that dream, I was podcasting with Rob Kelly or Ryan Daly <laughs> or Siskoid or Chris and Cindy Franklin. But this is good, too, man. This is good, too. And, and, and as I was trying to psych myself up to be on this show, I kept telling myself, well, you know, meeting Ringo Starr is still technically meeting one of the Beatles. So, so I'm, oh I'm really God. good. I'm really excited. I, I'm, I've gotten myself to a point where this is okay. I'm, uh, thanks for having me. I, at least I'm on the Fire and Water Network. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, you <laughs> talked about... <laughs> <laughs> you talked about being a dream of being here. Well, it, a, a nightmare is it technically still a dream, so that works. <laughs> still counts. Oh, still counts wow. as a dream. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to have you here. Sean produces a podcast that I absolutely love that Greg does really most of the heavy lifting. Sean just shows up. Uh, it's called Secret Wars and Beyond, and it, they have gone in-depth studying the Secret Wars miniseries. They started with Dr. G, of course, with Secret Wars 1. They, they found a way to <laughs> podcast about Secret Wars 2 and make it interesting, which is insane. And on the horizon, they're covering one of my favorite series, Squadron Supreme, and I hear they've got a really good guest lined up for that series, so hopefully uh, he'll help save the podcast from disaster. Oh yeah, we are going guest heavy on this Squadron Supreme miniseries for the joy of our listeners, just to, as a reprieve, <laughs> because, I, and I don't like to admit this, but I broke Greg Arujo. Like, I, I mean to, he's a really nice guy, but I invited him to be on the podcast, I invited him to cover Secret Wars 2 with me, and he was this nice, simple guy from Kansas, very smart, very sweet, and now he is just the master of the passive aggressive sigh and so so we needed to do something differently we needed to take a little break and we're covering squadron supreme to get greg back together and also it's pretty awesome could you imagine greg and rob kelly just together sighing through like 30 minutes of a podcast the whole time that would be phenomenal i would love that they would be perfect middle school girls they have i mean you talked about me teaching middle school they would be perfect middle school girls because they and i don't i don't even see rob but i can see him rolling his eyes at you i can oh, yeah. feel it yes. through the airwaves and i can hear the sigh and greg does the same thing with with me and all I'm reminded of is those kids I taught when I walked in the room and I tried to be funny or I tried to be cool and they just sighed and rolled their eyes at me and I felt like I was back in middle school which was awesome it was a good career choice <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I kind of envision what you did to Greg. Uh, I don't know if you ever read Doom Patrol by Grant Morrison. Oh, yeah. Um, I kind of envision what happened to Mr. Nobody, where he got locked in the room and went insane. <laughs> it's kind of what you did to Greg. So that's that's how I see it. But yeah, he's on TV now, so that's something, right? That, that's a good analogy, actually, yeah. Well, folks, Sean and I could talk and take snipes at each other all night long. And believe me, we've done it. But in order to make these episodes a little bit shorter, because, I don't know, a little birdie told me they've been getting long, I'm going to get right to the point where we thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library, usually be tied into one of the issues that we're covering from the JLI in some way, shape, or form. This month, I brought Animal Man by Grant Morrison, hardcover, book one, 30th anniversary deluxe edition. Man, that's a long title. It's the Animal Man collection, guys. That's what you need to know. It collects the first 10 issues plus the Secret Origins issue. You know, Grant Morrison's your writer, so you know it's batshit crazy. Uh, <laughs> art is by Chaz Truhog, covers by Brian Ballin. It is 368 Oof. pages, full color. It is an amazing collection. I love this series. In fact, I just got the soft cover collections myself just recently because I own the issues. I've been reading them on DC Universe, and I just wanted to have them on the shelves because I love them that much. Now, it normally retails for $34.99, which is a big number, I know, but keep in mind, it's a hardcover, and again, 368 pages. But with in-stock trades, you can get it for 42% off, so it's only $20.29. Heck of a bargain, and it's Animal Man is a fantastic character. We're going to talk about him a lot on the back end in the JLE issue this month, so you, if you've never read the Animal Man series, I cannot recommend it enough. Honestly, it's all worth it just for issue number five all uh-huh. by itself. The whole thing is so good. Now, Sean, I'm not sure if you've ever listened to an episode of our show. Probably not, because you don't seem to be one for preparation. But anyway, <laughs> um, normally I give my in-stock trades recommendation, and then the guest brings one as well. You're certainly not obligated in any way, shape, or fashion. I mean, every other single guest that's come before you has. Well, so if you didn't, it would be pretty much a great disappointment. But dude, it's cool. It's it's fine. You be you. You know, that's what I'm saying. Did, did you happen to bring one? I did, and I brought a really good one. So oh, my oh, okay, you're you're off the hook. I'm, I am. I am. My pick is Grayson Volume One: Agent of Spiral by Tim Seeley, Tom King, and Mikkel Jennine. Now, this collection follows Dick Grayson, who had his secret identity revealed to the world, and then apparently died in the Forever Evil miniseries. And he joins a super secret spy organization, Spiral. Now, I brought this as my recommendation because Grayson's first assignment for the team is to partner with Helena Bertinelli, the Huntress, ah. to take down the Midnighter. So it is a phenomenal book. It collects over 160 pages of comics. The first arc of Grayson, as well as the Future Ends issue, though don't hold that against it. Now... <laughs> This so book, wait, this is New 52 you're talking about, it then, is, right? It is, it is. And that's that's a like a big step for me, man. Like this is <laughs> – I am definitely a post-crisis baby. Like I am not somebody who loves the New 52. And, and so for me to recommend this – now, the reason I'm recommending it is, one, it's, it's phenomenal. But this is Tom King's first ongoing work in comics. Mm. And he is partnered with Tim Seeley, who's a more experienced writer. But you can see King creeping in, creeping in, creeping in over the course of the book. And I'm not disparaging Tim Seeley. He's amazing. But it's also Mikkel Jennings, and he is – is, for those of you who love the current Batman book by Tom King, he's part of the reason you love it because his art is fantastic. So this this trade is originally $14.99, but the in-stock trade price is only $8.69, which is 40% off. And I want to throw a gauntlet down quickly. I, I want people to pick this book up because by the time this episode is released, you will have all seen Adventures Endgame in which Cap claims that he has America's tush. And I'm going to say that if Cap has America's tush, Dick Grayson has the universe's tush. In fact, I once read a 100 response thread from Gail Simone about the, the qualities of Dick Grayson's derriere. So so I say people check it out for any of a number of reasons. The story is great, but it's also some good eye candy. <laughs> 
Well, I like a lot of the people you just mentioned. Tom King, I've read some of his stuff that I thought was phenomenal. I love the artists you talked about, so I would actually be willing to give this a shot. So, all right. Well, thank you for bringing that recommendation. And folks, for all of your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. All right, folks, as we get into Justice League America number 26 and Justice League Europe number two, we want you to go on the social medias. We want you to get out on the Twitters, get out on the Facebooks, use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast, tag us at JLI Podcast on Twitter, Justice League International Blahaha Podcast on Facebook. We want you guys to talk about these comics and share your love for the JLI because this is all about building a community of JLI fans around this show. We want it to continue to grow and find more JLI fans and become, you know, the JLI army. We want to be out there. We want people to hear our voice and maybe we'll get more JLI comics someday. It could happen. Be awesome. Uh, first thing we're going to do is the part. Oh gosh, this part of the show. Okay, <laughs> this is the part. I apologize, folks. I should have cut this right from the script. This is the part where I have to talk to Sean. I'm really sorry. I know we want to talk about Justice League, but instead we're going to talk about this Joker. Anyway, all right. So Sean, could you please tell us your origin with the JLI? How did you find the JLI? Why did you fall in love with the book? So my JLI origin is really a story in ten parts, Shag. And oh my god. god. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have the archetypal generic JLI origin story. I started collecting it off the spinner racks with JLA 218, which came out in September of 1983, and this was right in the heart of the satellite era. It's Mm -hmm. a great story with Professor Ivo. It's a great story with the Satellite League, written by the amazing Jerry Conway, drawn by Chuck Patton, and I loved it. I got in at the satellite era right at that point, right in the mid-200s, and right when it died, which is kind of the story of my life. (laughs) However, the comic gods were watching over me, because as the satellite era died, JLA Detroit rose from the ashes, and I am telling you, JLA Annual 2, where JLA Detroit is formed, that is the giant size X-Men 1 of my generation, man. Wow! <laughs> okay, okay. Bro- brother from another mother. You love exactly. Justice League Detroit, so do I, buddy. So I love JLA Detroit all the way up to the end. JMD Mateus gives it a great send-off with Luke McDonald, and then I went into the JLI just like everybody else, and, and actually, just like I think literally every one of your listeners, it did not click with me. I didn't get why it was trying to be funny. I didn't get why there weren't great fights in it. I didn't get what they were doing. I enjoyed issue four with Booster Gold, but I was not fully (laughs) on board. And then issue eight, Moving Day hits, and I was all in. So... So I love it. I've loved it since the very beginning. And that's kind of where I stood. I've got every, every issue of JLI and when it becomes JLA and it becomes JL and then it becomes JLGL and then it becomes all these different things. <laughs> but it's a great series. And I'm super glad you're covering it because it's really nice to go back and read those issues. It is super fun. I mean, I've really been surprised myself how much fun it is to go through and reread these because you, you there's so many things you forget. All right, folks, normally at this point in the conversation, I ask the guest who their favorite member of the JLI is. But let's be honest, everyone always said Booster, Beetle, Guy Gardner was all the same answer anyway. And I'm trying to make the show a little shorter so we're going to cut this segment going forward in order to get you guys out of here quicker oh okay cool 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 cool. like thanks for inviting me to disneyland and not letting me ride space mountain dude that's that's (laughs) awesome that's great problem here's here's the teacups where you can spin around and throw up (laughs) i'm on mr toad's wild ride and it sucks as much as it did when i was a kid I love that ride, man. Shut up, man. Shut up. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, if you don't have Justice League America number 26 in front of you, you can go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. We will post a few of the panels from there. Not a lot, because now this it's pretty widely distributed out there. You should be able to get your hands on this, but we'll post some of them, the relevant ones that we discuss, out there on our website in our image gallery. Now, this is, as I said, Justice League America, the very first issue of Justice League America. Notice there's no of hanging out in the middle of there. Justice League International becomes... Comes 
Justice League America. It is a comic nerd filing index nightmare. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Justice League America number 26 from DC Comics, cover dated May 1989, was on the shelves March 14th, 1989. The cover price is 75 cents, three shiny quarters, and covered by Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. Now, Sean, do you want to tell us a little about the cover? Yeah, it's a really nice point of view cover. We are looking at Huntress's crossbow, almost down the crossbow, or at least along the side, pointed directly at Batman, who is in a very vulnerable position because he is checking over the unconscious, potentially dead, body of Blue Beetle, and they're in a back alley covered in trash. So right from the cover, they are communicating to you that there might not be as much boaha in this issue. I think it's a it's an interesting message, and it's a solid cover. Yeah, and it also has the tagline, Bug Hunt, right on there as well, which uh, of course implies Blue Beetle being hunted. Now, a couple different things I want to mention. One is the cassette tape on the ground just cracks me up um, 30-odd <laughs> years later. That's funny. Uh, the other is there appears to be some black schmutz on my cover, and oh, wait, that's Ty Templeton's signature. Isn't Ooh. that nice? Oh, okay. Um, the other thing is, it's interesting how Kevin McGuire has changed his style. I do these custom images for every single episode, so I've spent a lot of time studying the covers because I'm cropping out stuff and trying to make the images part of the logo for the episode, which really isn't any big deal unless you look at your phone when you're listening, whatever. But the point I'm making is all of Kevin McGuire's covers to this point have really been more of like a postery image. Very rarely are they an action shot. And also the background is almost entirely gone. Usually the background is one single color. So he really went a different route this time with adding all these different things in here. And if I hadn't seen his signature on it, I wouldn't have thought this was a McGuire cover because it is very different from previous ones. Oh, but I tell you, I love it. I mean, it is great. As you said, the perspective with the purple glove there. And if you don't know who Huntress is, you have no idea whose hand that is. Oh, it's fantastic. It's really, really great. And I want to point out one little crossover moment because if you look really closely at that cassette tape, it's Samantha Fox, which just must make Zoom you can already happier than anything. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like Sean's mixtape. I thought that's what you were going to say, but okay. <laughs> By the way, I, I mentioned Ty Templeton signed this. I should have mentioned specifically he signed it at Heroes Con in 2017. And for those of you at home, uh, if you're not aware, Paul Hicks did not attend Heroes Con that year. So just pointing that out. Anyway, little inside joke for some people. All right, folks, this issue is Plot and Breakdown by Keith Giffen, script by J.M. DeMatteis, penciler Ty Templeton, woo! Inker Joe Rubenstein, letter Bob LaPan, colorist Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, editor Andy Helfer. Sean, why don't you take us through the first half? So the book is titled Slice and Dice, or There's Something Very Wrong with the Blue Beetle. Now we open on the JLA headquarters, and Beetle is sleeping through his monitor duty, much to the ire of Guy and Oberon. Beetle finally wakes up and answers the ringing phone, and we cut to the kitchen, where Max and Oberon are chatting and are suddenly interrupted by Beetle. A series of blood-curdling screams and one running refrigerator repairman later, and we learn (laughs) that Beetle stabbed Oberon and is in pursuit of Max. Now before Guy can help, he witnesses a green flash as B descends the stairs. And this is a precursor to a big change to our favorite heroine. Now, pardon the pun, but we cut back to Max, who was running for his... Oh, I know, I had to say it. He was running for his life, and Beetle is maniacally trying to kill him. He is genuinely frightening. Now, just as Beetle is moving in for the kill, he is confronted by DC's newest heroine, the Huntress. I'll take it from here. So, Beetle and the Huntress beat on each other until Beetle is accidentally (laughs) shot in the leg by Huntress's bouncing crossbow. With Beetle and Max both down, Huntress tries to help Max, and suddenly Batman arrives in a stunning full-page splash panel. The Dark Knight assumes that Huntress is responsible for all of this chaos, and of course he does, because that's the post-crisis Batman and Huntress in a nutshell. Uh, Batman and Huntress then tussle while she tries to explain what happened to Batman's disbelief. That 
is until Beetle is back on his feet trying to kill Max again <laughs> while talking about his, quote, beloved queen. The Dark Knight detective takes down the Beetle and he turns around, but Huntress has slipped away. Later, Max has been patched up and Oberon is recovering in the hospital. And at the embassy, Max, Batman, and the Martian Manhunter meet to discuss Blue Beetle, Huntress, and whatever's going on with fire. And they're waiting for Beetle to regain consciousness. And when he does, they're pretty sure they won't like what they find out. Next issue, Brain Drain. And also on next issue, if you roll ahead to the letters page, they promise that next issue will feature a special guest appearance by Amanda Waller from the Suicide Squad. Yay. And another special guest star on the last page that the readers have been demanding. So you'll have to wait till next month to find out who that is, folks. All right. So, Sean, what did you think of this issue? I love this issue. I'm, I was really happy when this was the issue that I drew in the JLI lottery that you held several years ago. <laughs> 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 because I'm a huge Hunters fan. And, and actually, I'm a big fan of JLI when it swerves. And it's mm. been a lot of wahaha. And this is one of the times in the next issue, especially, when it really leans into some darkness. And I like that because I like the sweet and the sour, right? Like the, the more serious makes the, oh, the yeah. wahaha more funny. And again, I'm a huge Hunters fan. And, and there's some interesting stuff to note. So the the Huntress series is only on issue two at this point. So this is a huge push for her. And she is, for those of you who don't know, Helena Bertinelli is a post-crisis version of the Huntress. The original Huntress was Helena Wayne, who was the daughter of Batman and Catwoman of Earth 2, which is freaking awesome. And she was a great <laughs> character. She had a backup in Bronze Age Wonder Woman, which saved Bronze Age Wonder Woman. And she, sorry, I know uh, Diablo Frank's probably cursing at me right now. Yeah, he's not real happy. <laughs> but, but is he ever happy? <laughs> That is true. She had a backup in Bronze Age Wonder Woman, and they were some really great stories. In particular, her look was defined by Joe Staten. So when Crisis happens, she has a very powerful death in Crisis 12. Her and the Earth 2 Robin are together, and they're killed by the Shadow Demons. And so post-Crisis, there's a new Huntress series that launches. And I remember being a kid and picking this up. And as an adult, I look back and I look at the creative team. It's Joey Cavalieri and Joe Staten, who really would be more famous for a book like, oh, I don't know, New Guardians. Or something along those lines. <laughs> uh, you and I share something in common, Shag. I am not a fan of 80s Joe Staten. Yeah. In, yeah, in most cases, 70s, he's a god. Well, it, it, and I want to specify, it's when he's drawing superheroes. Like, yeah. I don't, like, and, and they're supposed to be serious superheroes. I, I just can't get on board with it. And so I'm, I'm in the same place, man. I did not love his Green Lantern stuff. I did not love Millennium. As a kid, I picked up this, this Huntress series, and it is phenomenal. It is so good. It's, it doesn't live for very long. It's only 19 issues, and there's an addendum in a JLA quarterly issue. I just want to be clear. Uh, Huntress number one, at that point, is her first appearance post-crisis, right? The, this is the introduction of Bertinelli version? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. First appearance is Huntress number one, and we get a brutal origin. She's the daughter of a mob boss that her entire family is eliminated by a rival gang. She's sent to Italy. She's trained by assassins. She returns to get revenge on the people who killed her father. It is the darkest dang book you have ever read, and it's drawn by Joe Staten. <laughs> I mean, it, honestly, it's incredible. It would be like Mike Parabek drawing it. Like It just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't fit in my brain, but it is excellent. It is excellent, and it's really worth reading. And actually, there's a wonderful podcast about it, which made me very happy because I didn't have to start one myself. I was considering it called The Huntress Podcast, and it's amazing. And uh, you guys should listen to it. It's a great book. I would highly recommend it, but it's really dark. And so I was 
was very surprised that they gave her this bump in Justice League America because that's a major, I mean, this is a hot book at the time. Oh, it's yeah. a major appearance. And the kids, myself included, who are reading this issue are going to run to their local store and go, hey, she's cool. I'm going to pick up her series. And they are going to be <laughs> maybe too early right. exposed to the Law & Order SVU of the DC Universe. Oh, I'm not joking when I say that. It is that level of dark. Wow. But it's really good, and it's really worth reading. And that's wild that, you, as you said, I mean, she was on issue number two when they did this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is super early. Now, obviously, I mean, it's not like, you know, a, a brand new character, because there was the established pre-crisis version. And in addition to those comics you mentioned, she also was part of uh, All-Star Comics with the uh, Super Squad and, yeah. and Infinity Inc. and all that stuff, too. So, she was around in the public consciousness, but this is genuinely in a new original version. I didn't really bump into the Helena Bertinelli version myself, or pay attention to her, I should say, until was it Robin 3 Cry for Huntress? Mm-hmm. And from then on, I was all in on, on this version of Huntress. I think she's phenomenal. I prefer this version to Helena Wayne, which is sacrilege to a lot of folks out there. They're screaming at their zonophones or whatever. How dare I? <laughs> but for, I prefer the Helena Bertinelli version. Uh, now, if you like the Helena Wayne version, you can go watch the Birds of Prey TV series. There you go. There's your Helena Wayne. Enjoy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so here we go. Here's a, here's my secret question for you. I picked Ooh. this up from... Well, I, I heard it on some other podcast. It wasn't a very good show, but they had this idea where they surprised the, the guests with one question or not. So, which costume is best for Helena Bertinelli? Is it her original sort of, you know, one-piece bathing suit type costume with the cool boots? Is it the covered head-to-toe except her chin costume with, with the, all the blacks and purples? Is it the, is your belly button in or Audi costume <laughs> or whatever the hell she wears later on in the New 52? So, what is the best Helena Bertinelli Huntress costume? My favorite Huntress costume actually comes from my favorite Huntress story, which is the 2000 miniseries Batman Huntress Cry for Blood by mm-hmm. Greg Ruck and Rick Burchett. And actually, if you like Ty Templeton's art, Rick Burchett is in the Ty Templeton school. I mean, it's, his stuff looks very mm-hmm. similar. And that oh, miniseries yeah. is fantastic. It retells her origin, kind of resets it a little later post-crisis. It's fantastic. And she gets the, the costume you described, the sort of head-to-toe coverage, you know, with the, the mask that covers most of her face. And she has the, the golden crucifix, you know, yep. at the at the necklace, which is kind of her thing, kind of her look. And I like that a lot for a number of reasons. One, I, I'm a little sick of female characters having costumes that, especially powerless female characters, having costumes that don't make sense in battle. So I, I kind of like, like, oh, this is cool. This makes sense in a fight. She's covered. You know, it's almost like a, like a low-level D&D armor, right? It's like mm-hmm. leather armor because you haven't gone to the dragon yet. And so... <laughs> And so I like that costume a lot. And that's actually my favorite story. This costume, it was quaint to see it again, actually, because it's so, I mean, it looks like she literally grabbed that cape off a line. Like somebody was drying their sheets and she was like, okay, purple it is. And she just grabbed the sheet, threw it around her neck. It's not a great costume, not a great look. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you – that's actually my favorite as well. I refer to it as the Total Justice costume because oh, okay. uh, when they when they made the action figure based on the to- – it wasn't the Total Justice line. Technically, it was the next iteration, which was JLA. That was the costume they did. And also, I want to say that – wasn't that the costume she was wearing in Cry for Huntress as well? Yep. Uh, yeah. So that is also I, – I, I absolutely my favorite version of her costume. I was not a fan of when Jim Lee redesigned it and you got to see the innie or outie belly button, which I just thought was ridiculous. Why, why would you have a lady who does or, – or a man or anyone for that matter who does hand-to-hand combat with an exposed stomach. It's just asking for a gut wound. It's just dumb. Anyway. All right. So are you, you'd mentioned this earlier and we've been hinting at it since the very first episode of this podcast, which is one of the things JLI excels at is telling very character driven and humor driven stories. And you, you genuinely begin to care about the characters more. So when bad stuff goes down, you really feel it more. It's more meaningful. It's a lot more of a gut punch. And this issue is the one I've been hinting at whenever I talk about, you oh, know, cool. when, when the shock happens, 
it's really gets to you. This is where it starts. Now, this is a four-issue arc, and it's going to play out over the next several issues, but this is the beginning of it. Man. And and by way of example, the, the jokes, you know, the, the blah ha stop on page six. Mm-hmm. There is not another gag until page 21, and even those aren't very blah ha ha They're just minor little, you know, back and forth sniping. So they, they drop it entirely. This becomes a different book than it's been up to this point, and it's just, wow. Yeah, they set us up in this book, because we think it looks like a normal issue. Guy smashes the phone as it's ringing, yep. Oberon's grousing at everybody, Beetle's asleep at the wheel, and then they just pull the rug out from under you in a very cool way. So I, I'm excited that this is the issue I got, because I like this part. I like, again, it reminds me of the, and I'm not spoilers, but the Despero two-parter that's coming much, oh, much, yeah. much, much later. It reminds me of that moment, because, you know, stuff gets real. <laughs> yes, it does. It gets very real. Now, you talked about Guy smashing the phone in the beginning. See, I love that, because Templeton, again, here is showing that he is the true successor to McGuire. Mm-hmm. He is so good with the facial expressions, whether it's Guy earlier, whether it's Huntress later in the issue. There's a lot of different close-up shots of Huntress's face and just showing shock and surprise and all these different things. And you can totally tell what she's thinking or what Guy's thinking early on. Like, Guy is he's staring at the phone as it's ringing and he's so annoyed and he's just glaring out of the corner of his eye, like panel <laughs> after panel after panel. And it's just hilarious. The expression says it all. I mean, and that's a that's a, a key element to an artist in a comic book is the writer shouldn't have to put word balloons in there to convey what's trying what's going on and it, it all works it's all in the acting of the character I love mm-hmm. it and any of the listeners who are fans of like Doc Shaner he is the successor of Ty Templeton mm. and Mike Parabek I mean they're all from that same kind of animation cell driven yeah. school and it's amazing Templeton is I mean it is impossible to pick up what McGuire laid down without suffering you know in comparison and Templeton's like nope I'm good I'm great here we go and, and, the, and the book doesn't <laughs> suffer at all and he's actually and, and I feel like with this issue he's come a good ways from when he started on the book too. I mean, he's already progressed and I'm glad you mentioned animation cell. That's crazy because there's a, a full page splash here where Batman is confronting the Huntress, right? Yeah. Where, or he, Batman shows up and it is just stunning. I mean, Huntress is shocked. She doesn't know he's coming. It's set up perfectly where you have to flip the page to get to it and Batman is just standing there and his face is all in shadow. You can't see the skin part at all. So it looks like his cowl's all black, which is the way I always wanted to be when I was a kid anyway. It looks kind of like Batman Beyond, mm-hmm. sort of that kind of mask. And the line work is so stinking clean. In my notes, I actually wrote, it's almost like an animation cell. Yep. It is that clean. It is that beautiful. And it's just so damn impressive. I mean, it's just a great page. And and if I'm I'm looking, I don't know, did you read a, a, a floppy or a digital? What'd you do? Yeah, I've got the floppy. Okay. Well, folks, I, I definitely recommend the floppy or the digital. But if you get a chance, compare the two side by side. Go look at the digital because it's a bit of a kapow on the digital because the colors are so strong and the mm-hmm. blacks are so deep. And you can read this, you know, on Comixology. You can, oh, by the way, folks, great news, DC Universe app, the subscription service, which I have fallen back in love with. They have loaded almost all the Justice League comics out there now. So I was reading this issue in preparation. I read the hard copy and I read it digitally. And this page digitally is just stunning because the blacks are so deep and it's just, oh, stunning. All right. Sorry. I'll talk about it all night if I don't stop. Oh, gosh. What else? There is a fantastic standout moment for Guy Gardner. It is the standout for, moment for Guy Gardner, actually, because it's not one of these big, grandiose fight scenes where he's you know fighting Lobo or he's raging or whatever. It's because he stops to take care of the injured Oberon. Mm-hmm. And you sh- they show, without anyone really noticing, that he genuinely is worried about him. And that was a moment where it's like, oh, Guy, he's on this team. He is, you know, at this moment, when it went down and it got real, he's not just the, the jackass, the loudmouth. He is part of this team. 
team, and that is his teammate, and he is taking care of him. And it was like, wow, that that moment just gets to me. The more I think about it, I get all verklempt just just thinking about it. <laughs> well, there's a great moment with fire. You know, as, as B comes walking down the stairs and she's sick from the gene bomb and invasion, and then we get the flash, you know, which is a, a very famous moment in JLI because of what's going to follow. Yep. He's genuinely concerned about her as well. So he has to kind of stay at the home front and take care. And the guy gardener of issue three of JLI just punches out the door and goes after the action. He doesn't care yep. about any of this. But yeah, you're right. He is settled in. He's starting to care. And we're starting to see his personality, you know, seep through and come through. The guy we will know is starting now. Yep. It's nice. It, it, it really, this issue just gives me all the feels. Uh, you mentioned Beetle being scary when he's chasing uh, mm-hmm. a, a Max. I mean, you're absolutely right because we almost never see Blue Beetle in hand-to-hand combat in a Justice League international book. Just never. He's always, he's a jokester. He's there for pranks. They don't show him being a competent fighter. And here, they, he even talks about that. He goes, I'm not the practical joker. I'm, I'm, I'm the real Blue Beetle, whatever. And he's quite scary seeing mm-hmm. him chase Max down there because he's incredibly competent. He's very agile. He's got this like scary serial killer confident smile and you can't see his eyes because of the way the, go- the goggles are. It's really well done. It's effectively, it, it's cartoony. It's almost like Mike Parabek-ish, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but it's scary as hell. It's really well done. When it reminds us, he is a self-made man. He is a self-made billionaire and he trained himself and his body to be a superhero without powers who was part of the greatest team on the planet. So yeah, I like the reminder that Beetle is not a guy to mess with. Yeah. So towards the end here, uh, I do want to mention in the letters page, something fun has happened here. I, I was reading the letters page and they always do this like roundup at the end where they just real briefly mention a lot of people that wrote letters. And one of them mentions a uh, college student, this guy who goes to University of Michigan who's requesting that they actually have what he calls a good fight, please. <laughs> uh, and it's some guy named Brad Meltzer. So uh, yeah, who? famous author, Brad Meltzer, comic book writer, wrote into Justice League. So I took a shot of this and put it up on Twitter and just tagged Brad Meltzer and made a little joke or whatever. And Brad, like he had never, he didn't even know he was printed in the comic. He was so thrilled. So he retweeted and shared it out there. I was like, oh, that's cool. Kind of had a nice little interaction with Brad Meltzer. That was fun. Thank you, Justice League. That is cool. And you know, actually, do you know who he's living with at that moment? Right now he's in Florida. No, at that moment, when he writes that letter, college student, his roommate is Judd Winnick, who would go on to be on Real World Season (laughs) 3 and would go on to write Barry Ween, Boy Genius, have some runs on Green Lantern. Yeah, they're best friends. They they were roommates in college and they both loved comics and they both geeked out together. And to this day, they are still great friends. So yeah, he and Judd Winnick, like Judd Winnick was right there when he wrote that letter. That is crazy. What a small comic book world. So, so crazy. Well, one of the things I also want to mention too, I did mention this is the beginning of a four issue arc. So question for you, you know, that's a little unusual for this book. Mm -hmm. So do you think it's merited? You know, it was this worth four issues or are we facing sort of a decompressed era because the writers are now working on two monthly books? That's a great question. And the two monthly book part is worth considering. I don't think it's decompressed. Uh, In fact, I will argue the next issue, 27, which has, in my mind, one of the five best covers in in JLI history. So good. So So good. good. The Amanda Waller issue is fantastic. And then there's a great, another another Huntress moment that's really good. And uh, the thing that's great is, and this is Keith Giffen's talent, right? He's juggling so many subplots at this moment that we don't really get bored of the A plot because the B and C plots are so good. So, no, I don't think it's padded at all. And I definitely know what you're talking about. And, and I sense that in a later era, like breakdowns, you know, there's some stuff there. But he, I don't feel that here. I still feel like every issue is essential. And I feel the same way. I don't think it is being padded. I don't think it's being drawn out. It just kind of caught my attention. And then I couldn't help wonder that because all this is going on at the same time. And, and I say they're doing two monthly books. Technically, Demetrius is doing four. 
Because oh he's doing God. Justice League America, Justice League Europe. He's doing Mr. Miracle. I think he is at the still at this point. I think I think he hasn't left that book yet. And Dr. Fate. I mean, that's insane, the amount on one man's plate. Wow. Yeah, so, that's crazy. Well, it was an incredible issue. I absolutely loved it. It is a game changer, to some extent, really, in, in the direction of this book. Or at the very least, it shows you how flexible the Boahaha format is and that, that they can jump back and forth between a really terrifying story and cracking jokes. And uh, I, th- I think it's a win all the way around. Me too. Me too. It's a great issue. Awesome. All right, folks, this is the part where we go toe-to-toe, knife in my hand, crossbow in Sean's hand, and we are going to have to determine who's going to get the... Wahaha Award. This is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Sean will pick a moment, and one will walk away with the coveted Wahaha Award. Sean, unfortunately for the world, you're the guest. Uh, you get to go first then. What is your nomination for the Wahaha Award? So I want to say my choice is going to be a little controversial. I am not being facetious. I am not trying to be controversial. I fully, 100% mean what I'm about to say. My favorite moment, like my Wahaha moment, is when Beetle straight up cuts Maxwell Lord. Because as we, both, we, as we both know... So in about twenty something years, <laughs> Maxwell Lord is going to is going to make Beatles head into a convertible, and it is one of the Never most hor- horrific and dark moments in Justice League history. And so you know what? As I was reading this issue and I'm watching Max bleed at the hand of Beetle, I'm going wahaha bleed mother. So it's a controversial <laughs> pick, but it is my pick, and I'm standing by it. There's <laughs> a little retroactive continuity going there. Now you know you could flip it around and say maybe that's why Max ventilated his head. I don't know. Although, still, I'd still say that story never happened. Um, hmm, interesting pick. <laughs> Sorry, but I stand by it. Well, and you know, that's fair because there aren't a lot of jokes to pick from in this issue, actually. Mm-hmm. I took a I took a long look at this. There's some there's some jokes in the first six p- pages, but not a lot of like gut-busting funny jokes. So I had a hard time picking mine. Uh, mine's a little more straightforward because it's actually <laughs> funny. Um, is when Beetle falls asleep. It's on page three. Beetle falls asleep at monitor duty. Oberon comes in there and he's ticked off and he screams in his face to wake him up. And Beetle's like, whoa, whoa, why are you yelling? And then Oberon goes through this huge long litany of things he's pissed about. And Beetle goes, correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem angry with me about something. (laughs) Which I just thought was rather funny. Out of of all the jokes, that was the joke I liked the best. So, hmm, this is a weird one. How do we decide this one, Sean? (laughs) There's a a clear victor here. This (laughs) issue is not meant to be funny. This issue is meant to be dark and serious. And and really, honestly, for all the fanboys out there, for all of us who grew up on and loved the Bwahaha Justice League, to get a little bit of retroactive revenge on the Maxwell Lord prelude to Infinite Crisis moment is, is I think, there are things that are ha-ha funny, and there are things that, like, I'm going to stomp your face funny, and this is a, I'm going to stomp your face funny moment, and I'm sticking with it. I'm staying with it. Uh, it is dark, dark, darkity dark humor. That is for sure. <laughs> and, you know, I could take a little bit of that sweet, sweet revenge for Countdown to Infinite Crisis, actually. So I think we're going to give it to you. I think Woo-hoo. we're going to give it to Beetle stabbing <laughs> Maxwell Lord <laughs> and almost killing him. Wow. Okay. That's your boah-ha-ha moment of the day, folks. <laughs> so, um, evil, creepy, possessed Ted Cord, please take your Boahaha Award. I think this is the first time he's ever won one just himself, because every other time, and there's an awesome chart, by the way, out there, you can check it out, where it shows every single Boahaha Award that's been gifted out, and I think this is the first time that Ted's won one on his own in a weird sort of way. So thank you for giving that to us, Sean. I appreciate that. You're welcome. That. I'm a trailblazer. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, Sean, I need to ask you a favor. Um, here at the embassy, there is blood everywhere. It is all over the kitchen. It's all over the hall. It's all over the bathroom. Apparently, it was part of some bwahaha joke that Ted played on Max, I guess. Anyway, so <laughs> would you mind hanging around here and help clean it up some? After all, you are something of an expert on bathrooms since you covered Spider-Man teaching the Beyonder how to go poo in Secret Wars 2. So I figured, you know, you kind of know your way around the toilet. Would you mind helping out? I'm good, man. I'll put the crossbow down. I'll grab a brush and I will start scrubbing away the, the shame. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. And don't worry, we're going to bring you back at the end of the show. Because after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy in France, where I'm going to be talking about the second issue of Justice League Europe with my second co-host. The world's strongest hero. The warrior from a hidden island. The master of super speed. The wielder of the weapon from beyond the stars. The champion of the seven seas. They are the only ones standing before a world beyond the brink of collapse. Their mission, abolish war and crime, eliminate poverty and hunger, clean the environment, cure disease, even stop death itself. They promise within a year to make the world a utopia, no matter how many lines they might need to cross. Coming soon to the Pulp to Pixel Network, the Squadron Supreme Cast. An exploration of Mark Gruenwald's epic 1985 Squadron Supreme miniseries. A look at the heroes, the villains, the fine lines separating them, and how this miniseries continues to play an influence in mainstream superhero comics. Good afternoon, Mr. President. Sorry I've been away so long. I won't let you down again. It's finally here. Coming to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. General? Would you care to step outside? It's Superman 2 Movie Minute. Chris Franklin and Rob Kelly are back to discuss 1980's Superman 2, five minutes at a time. Superman faces his toughest challenge when he squares off against Lex Luthor and three villains from the planet Krypton. Superman 2 Movie Minute, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Man, this is going to be good. And now, Justice League Europe, number two. Back from break, folks, and I'm here with our second co-host who comes all the way from our Scottish embassy. How's that, folks? Come on, Justice League Europe, and we've got a European guest, almost like I planned it that way. This is my first time chatting with our co-host today. I really, really hope he doesn't screw things up. He's been a comics blogger, and he's a geek fitness enthusiast. Seriously, folks, this guy gives Jason Momoa a run for his money in the muscles department. I've seen the photos. I'm not kidding. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. Matt 
Ev. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Matt. Thanks for being here. How you doing, buddy? Hi, Shag. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for comparison to uh, Jason Momoa, but the only thing I have in common with him is my long, lustrous locks, which um, is a trait I hear you share as well. So. Oh, yeah. I've got gorgeous, luminous, luminous hair. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> or I did 30 years ago when this comic came out. I actually had long, long locks at that point. That's not a joke. And there, are, there is photo evidence out there. I think mine disappeared before then. <laughs> <laughs> so, sir, Scotland, huh? You don't sound like Sean Connery. What's going on there? No, I'm invading species here. English, but been here for a long time uh, in Glasgow. Like Martin Gray, I believe, one of the the rival Scottish bloggers, but we we don't talk about him. <laughs> no, absolutely. I <laughs> can't have that business. <laughs> yeah, it's just nice to have more Europeans on this podcast than there are actually European members of the JLE. I was just thinking the same sort of thing. I was wondering, so Justice League Europe comes along, you're living in Europe. How exciting is that, right? Uh, except that there's not a single European member on the team. I know, shocking, shocking. Something they do address eventually, but yeah, might have thought of it earlier on. So you, you, you pretty much, you get Beefeater and Crimson Fox as your only representatives, I think, eventually? Yeah, and, uh, you know, Godiva's there on the outskirts, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, why don't you tell us, you know, we, we've touched on a little bit with the Justice League Europe sort of thing. What is your origin with the JLI? How did you find the book and what made you fall in love with it? Well, this is something I wrote about on my blog a while ago when I actually did blogging. I'm too lazy to do that these days. <laughs> but um, I think that you and I have very similar comic origin stories uh, in that we were both converted by Secret Wars, pretty much. Mm. So uh, Secret Wars came around in British reprints in about 1985, and uh, I was obsessed with that. Absolutely obsessed. I'd seen a few American comics before, but Secret Wars was the big thing. And I became absolutely immersed in it, discovered the entire Marvel Universe through this, and eventually became obsessed with the X-Men. And at that time, I and my friends all read Marvel. We didn't know anybody who read DC whatsoever. DC was kind of seen as really straight and not very interesting. Everyone was overpowered, and it seemed like quite simplistic. But obviously, not reading it, I didn't know that. <laughs> so by the time the 90s started rolling around, and Marvel started going a bit extreme, right. uh, becoming a little bit shite. Can I swear on this? <laughs> uh, you just did. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, I started drifting away from Marvel, well, from the X-Men and from Marvel and from comics in general. But one day I went to a comic shop in our small town. Well, I say a comic shop, it was actually a gaming shop. It's basically Warhammer and it had a little tiny box of back issues. Mm -hmm. And I'd go in and have a little look see if there's anything interesting. And I kind of knew the guy in the shop quite well, so there's a certain social pressure to buy something, anything at all. And so I, these two issues of Justice League caught my eye, which were issues three and four of the Giffen and Demetrius series. Mm -hmm. And I just bought them basically out of politeness. I didn't want to offend the guy in the shop. But the covers caught my eye. There's a really sort of beautiful colour scheme on them and quite intriguing as to who these people were and what was going on. And uh, I took the home and eventually just became obsessed with those as well. And yeah, the characters, I knew Green Lantern and Batman of Obviously. But then there was all these other weirdos like Blue Beetle, Mr. Miracle. Who are these people? <laughs> and Martian Manhunter. And it, there was very little information about who they were, what they were doing, even what their powers were. In fact, there was an issue of Marvel's parody series, uh, What The, mm -hmm. where they featured the Justice League and they had the Marshmallow Manhunter. <laughs> I remember the line he said was, I'm reading this week's issue of Justice League to find out what my powers are, if any. Oh, gosh. I got to find that now. Yeah. And that kind of really struck me. I've always had this weird fascination with characters who who don't seem to do anything or are quite useless and sit on the sidelines, which as a, a Firestorm fan, I'm sure you are familiar with. <laughs> 
Yes, quite a bit. Quite a bit. Yeah, so it was basically the, this fascination with trying to find out more about who the Justice League were that dragged me into DC. And I read nothing but DC for the next 10 years or so until Marvel got its act together in the early 2000s. So that was really how I came to DC in general. And in JLE, uh, I had no idea there was such a book. And it was several years after it came out that I really? found it in a back issue bin. Yeah, just I found issue number one. I thought, what is this? And I was away for the summer and ended up buying lots of back issues of JLE and reading the first 20 or so issues. So I got mm-hmm. the whole extremist saga and all that. And yeah, it was brilliant. I fell in love with Bart Sears' art. I just thought it was great. I obviously was enticed by Animal Man and Captain Atom. And yeah, I was just, I thought it was a great series. I stumbled across it purely by chance. That's wild. I was figuring you were going to say something like, you know, everyone over in Europe was aware of this book's existence and they got a big oh, push. God, no. and- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't even reading the books when they came out. It was all retrospectively. Gotcha. So, folks, uh, let this to be a lesson to you at home. If you're ever going to guest on the Justice League International podcast, be sure you butter up the earlier co-hosts by telling them how much you love their comic, like Secret Wars, that they do as a podcast like Sean did. So, way to go. <laughs> Sean is going to be thrilled when he gets to this part, and his ego is just going to go through the roof. Way to go. Thanks a lot, Matt. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> Way to ruin it. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into this issue, because I think we've got a lot to discuss here. So, folks, we are going to talk about Justice League Europe number 2 from DC Comics, cover dated May 1989. It was on the shelves March 28, 1989. Cover price, 75 cents, just three shiny quarters. And cover is by Bart Sears and Joe Rubenstein. So, uh, Matt, you want to describe the cover to us? Well, we have Metamorpho, Flash, and Elongated Man being plunged into the water by Tuatara, who's one of the uh, members of the Global Guardian with the caption Deep Sixed and yeah everybody appears to be drowning apart from Metamorpho and I'm not sure if he breathes or not to be honest mm. but yeah it's quite a good cover everyone's tangled up in this sort of bizarre fashion like a human knot I like it quite a lot it's quite a striking cover not one of the better ones of the series necessarily but yeah I dig it you? Elongated Man looks a little strange with the way they've drawn his face but you know I guess clearly anyone who's underwater suffocating is going to have a little bit of a strained expression on their face he's having a bad hair day there definitely yes he, very much so but yeah I mean Sears does an amazing job it looks really, really striking, as you mentioned. One of the things I like about this, and I talked about this in the first half of the show, is in some ways this reminds me of a Kevin McGuire cover in that you've got a, a, an image, but no specific backgrounds, not a lot of background, yeah. where it's just a solid color. Because McGuire used to do that on his covers, where to make the front characters pop, there really wouldn't be any background detail. Now, that's not going to be the case on later Bart Sears covers, but it does happen to be just on this one, and I talked about it earlier, so I just thought that was a bit of a coincidence. But yeah, it's a, it's a very exciting cover. Although, at the time, I had no idea who Tuatara was, and I didn't know I was supposed to know who it was. To be honest, I had no idea who Metamorpho or Elongated Man were either. So. <laughs> <laughs> but the caption Deep Sixed kind of caught my eye because I believe that's an American expression largely about being thrown overboard. Oh, okay. Not, not something we use over here necessarily. Interesting. But also just the idea of Tuatara, who's a green underwater guy. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this is some sort of weird reference to Kirby's Deep Six, who are a bunch of green underwater guys. That's the first thing that came to my mind when I pulled the issue, because I'm, I'm not reading ahead with my Justice League Europe's. I'm reading them for the show because I kind of want to experience the mystery as it unfolds. So that's actually the first thing I thought of. I pulled the issue out of my box and I saw a Deep Six just like you mentioned. And that's the first thing I went into my head. I'm like, oh, is this the New Gods characters? But no, obviously uh, not. So it, it almost seems like rather than being a, a play on it, it almost seems like maybe it was just a coincidental bad choice. Yeah, maybe. I think it would work better without the text, to be honest. Yeah. The image is strong enough on its own to not need that and it just confuses the issue because it does bring up those Kirby associations. You think, well, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, and you're right. Uh, the image is very strong. There's no confusion. They're clearly underwater. So there, there's, yeah. there's no 
no doubt about that. Interesting. Well, let's get into the issue. So the plot is by Keith Giffen. Script is by J.M. DiMatteis. Pencils by Bart Sears. Inking by Pablo Marcos. Letter Bob LaPan. Colorist Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor Kevin Dooley. And editor Andy Helfer. Why don't you start us off, Matt? Okay, this story is entitled Somebody Up There Hates Us. We open with Captain Atom gazing over a Paris graveyard, wondering what he's doing there. He's watching the funeral of the old man who collapsed at the embassy in the last issue, uttering the word braces. As the deceased turned out to be a Nazi war criminal, there are understandably few mourners in attendance, specifically none. Atom recaps the last issue's events, wondering why someone is out to sabotage the JLE. He then yells his own name as he launches himself into the sky, as one does. (laughs) Atom returns to the embassy, expecting the kind of Justice League disasters to which he has become accustomed, but is shocked to hear Catherine tell him everything is actually going very well. He encounters Sue and Ralph Dibney and discovers that the more capable and likeable of this pair is a computer expert. The other one is Ralph, who introduces himself as such. Captain Atom refuses to be quite so informal. Sue runs a computer search cross-referencing known Nazi groups with metahuman activity and finds three matches. Ralph twitches his nose to the disgust of all, and it's time for a good old-fashioned roll call. Flash, Animal Man, Power Girl, Rocket Red and Metamorpho are all summoned, and Ralph reminds Sue about his rubber junk. Because Ralph. (laughs) The members split up into mini-teams, in traditional Silver Age Justice League style, each of which is dispatched to one of the three neo-Nazi bases. Captain Atom and Animal Man head to California, only to find the neo-Nazi compound completely destroyed, yet there are no bodies. Our two heroes are suddenly confronted by a Viking on horseback and his weird-looking dog-type thing. This is the Wild Huntsman, one of the Global Guardians. After a brief fight in which Animal Man is no help at all, Captain Atom blasts his Nordic opponent trying to knock him out. However, on closer inspection, the axe-wielding maniac seems to be in a coma. Alright, we're at the halfway point, so I'll take it from here. We cut over to Frankfurt, Germany, and we catch up with Power Girl and Rocket Red. There, the Nazi headquarters is burning to the ground. As our Justice League Europe members begin to leave, they're attacked by a Japanese super-powered man called Rising Sun, who accuses them of being Nazis themselves. There's a big airborne rumble, resulting in Power Girl punching out the Rising Sun. She pulled her punch, though, so Rising Sun should only be winded, but instead he's strangely fallen into a coma. Then we cut to the English Channel, where we catch up with Metamorpho, Elongated Man, and Flash. We find out that Metamorpho can't remember the past five years of his life, and as the ferry heads for Dover, they are ambushed from the water by Tuatara, a superpowered guy clad in green and yellow, with a fin on top of his head and a third eye. Tuatara also calls our heroes Nazis, and as they manage to capture him in the water, he's also strangely falls into a coma. Finally, we're witness to a secret discussion between the former heroes turned JLI adversaries, Jack-O-Lantern and Owl Woman. They're orchestrating all of these confrontations, and we find out the Global Guardian's dome is back in business, and it's working for Bialya's Queen Bee. Next issue, the Justice League Europe versus the dome in a fight to the finish. Woof! All right, Matt, so what do you think of this issue? It's kind of a fun issue. It's a bit on the lightweight side, but that's no bad thing necessarily. But I, one of the things I really like is the callback to old Justice League where you do the, the small teams of two going off and doing their individual missions. It's mm-hmm. very definitely a throwback to that sort of Silver Age fun, I think. You know, one of the things I liked about that was that it gave us an opportunity to have three different fight scenes. So even though they were all very, very brief and very quick, it actually gave you a chance to have a little more in the story. So my memory of this issue was also that it was very light, but upon rereading it and studying it for this podcast, I actually feel like there's a lot of stuff packed in here. So it's funny how my perception has changed over the years. Yeah, some nice character moments um, mm-hmm. thrown in there, I think. Yeah. But it comes across as very sort of quick and breezy read, I think, because of the uh, episodic structure 
picture of it. Mm-hmm. The, I like the, the splash page is very definitely an echo of the issue one splash page as well. Oh, I see that. Okay, yeah. It's this uh, external shot of Paris with Captain Atom predicting dooms. The last issue, he said, this is going to be a disaster. This issue, he says, talk about a waste of time. It's, uh, it's setting him up this sort of doomsayer, which uh, sort of continues throughout the issue as well. <laughs> He's not yet become optimistic about this group's chances, I don't think. Yeah. You mentioned the Paris thing. I want to bring up, um, there's an article in Wizard Magazine published in 1991. It was issue number four. And um, Michelle Fife was kind enough to send me a copy of the article this last month. And in it, it actually has an interview with Bart Sears where he's talking about Justice League Europe. A quote here that's sort of related to this, he goes, I liked Justice League Europe. I wish I'd had the chance to actually see Europe because I really had no idea what it really looked like. I had pitiful reference. It's tough to find reference for normal streets, cars, mailboxes, and that kind of day-to-day stuff. With this page you're pointing out kind of reminded me of it because I don't think you can see the Eiffel Tower from every single spot in Paris. No. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> the fact that he's worked the Eiffel Tower into it is sort of sort of kind of keying on the fact that he didn't have a lot of reference to work from, so he had to pretty much guess. So I, I think that this, yeah, that's kind of fits in with that. And the, the Eiffel Tower is visible on the splash page of issue one as well. Ah. And Paris is, is built on a grid system, so it, you know you may be able to justify it on that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, having been to Paris, this, uh, this does capture the feel of it. I mean, it's quite impressive if he didn't actually go there and see it for himself. Mm-hmm. So on page two, we have Captain Atom looking at the funeral and pondering what's going on. And I love the shot at the bottom where his uh, metal skin starts to coat him, where it's that distinction where, unlike character like Colossus, who actually turns into metal, Captain Atom sort of coated in this stuff, and there's a thickness to it. I noticed that as well. It looks really cool. You're right. It's got a good, maybe, I don't know, uh, eighth of an inch thickness. And you can, and Bart yeah. Sears clearly demonstrates that. And it just, it's not something I ever th- thought about before with Captain Atom, but yeah, it looks fantastic. Uh, we just don't dwell on how that interacts with his hair too much. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that clearly doesn't work. You know, artistic license and all that. Right. And then obviously there's the moment where he yells his own name and leaps into the sky, which is something you can only do in a comic book. Only finish your thoughts by saying your own name <laughs> on the page. <laughs> Absolutely true. in public, they'll put you away. I was just thinking that, yeah. We'd all be locked up in the funny farm if we did that. <laughs> yeah, well, on the following sequence, we get to Captain Adam reminding everyone he's a bit of a man out of time by being shocked that Sue can work a computer. <laughs> right. Sometimes you forget he's a, he's a relic from the 60s, you know. It's uh, not something they emphasize too much in JLE, I don't think. It was more for his solo series. Well, and, and I wonder, a lot of times, Giffen and Dimenteos didn't even really know all the details of the backgrounds of these characters. And that's really evident in the early Justice League International issues with, like, Booster Gold and things like that. So in this case, I wonder how much they really know about Captain Adam and how much they're trying to fit in versus they're just trying to do this heroic, you know, man who's struggling to be in charge versus thinking about his backstory. So I didn't even think about the man out of time piece of this. And, and since you mentioned Sue, I also want to point out, I think that Bart Sears is doing a really nice job distinguishing between Catherine Colbert and Sue, both of which are people dressed in regular clothes with long black hair. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it's, and you have to work to distinguish what these two ladies and how they look different. I think he's doing a really good job of it. Yeah, absolutely. And Catherine's much more glamorous and Sue is, you know, I know you describe her a certain way and you're not wrong, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it out there. I know I'm being a pig, but it's right there in the name, folks. Irredeemable. Both Catherine and Sue are gorgeous and smoking hot. So just put it out there, folks. <laughs> Not, not that the guys aren't sexy, too, because let me tell you, this issue actually is full of guys' butts in this issue. I I don't know whether it's Bart Sears or Keith Giffen. We'll, figure, we'll talk about that in a bit. But there are lots and lots and lots of male tushies in this issue. So you get an equal amount of beefcake and cheesecake. Oh, absolutely. On, on page four, you've got a fantastic shot of uh, Captain Atom's shiny metal, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> 
So yeah, yeah. Later on, as you mentioned, Captain Adam, we get we get Animal Man's butt, we get Rocket Red's butt, and by the way, that's Russia's ass. In case you're wondering, uh, we got Power Girl. So we do get a little bit of, of female derriere, and if you're wondering, that's Atlantis's ass, or maybe Krypton's ass, depending on what you uh, subscribe to. <laughs> Sorry, a little bit of timely reference for you folks at home. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not going with that Atlantis stuff with Power Girl. <laughs> I don't know that anybody was. I think they were just uh, forced to deal with it at this point. Captain Atom has a little chat with Catherine, and when he's surprised that everything is running smoothly, which is an echo of how things were going very badly in Justice League International, spaceships coming through the roof and that sort of nonsense. And it also emphasizes that things just work better in Europe, generally. We get things done efficiently and while eating croissants and being sophisticated and sexy. A little bias, perhaps, there, sir? Yeah, you know it's true. You know it's true. I'm not going to say you're wrong. (laughs) There's also a nice bit of tension between uh, Elongated Man and Captain Atom, where Captain Atom refuses to tell Ralph his real name. Yeah, he's a bit of a dick sometimes, I think. Absolutely true. And then Sue's sort of flirting with Captain Atom. I mean, more more just to get Ralph's goat. Uh, It's like, wow, Sue, come on, man. (laughs) She's seen the shiny book, too, you know? That's true. That's true. Who could resist that? I I do like that Sue has this opportunity to really prove herself, because she's a fantastic character. I loved her from the Justice League Detroit days, but here's her opportunity to really step up with Justice League Europe, and I think this is the beginning of her being really, really an important piece of this book, which is great. I also like how she admits that a long man's twitching nose used to be cute when they were dating, but now it stopped being cute five years ago, she says, which uh, supports I, I've long had this philosophy about recruitment phases with significant others, male or female, where when you're, when you're dating somebody, you look at their hobbies and their quirks, and you say, oh, that's cute. I really like that. That's an endearing trait in you, when the reality is, give it five years or so once you're once you're in a committed relationship and those same cute quirks and hobbies really irritate the crap out of people so uh, <laughs> I'm sure my wife would agree with you I can't imagine anything like that where my wife might have some certain feelings about me spending hours and hours and hours locked away podcasting a room and not interacting with my yeah, family yeah. but anyway but um, it does emphasize as well I mean I did have a dig at Ralph earlier but yeah Sue and Ralph I think are a fantastic exemplary couple in comics although I found Ralph quite unbearable on his own it's only with Sue that he becomes acceptable and again I'm sure we all know couples like that we go (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting I hadn't thought about Ralph on his own without Sue and also interesting that this book features a lot of married people because you got Ralph and Sue Buddy Baker Animal Man you know one of his more interesting traits I mean I love the book but I love the fact that he's got a family Um, Dimitri's got a family not that we see them much so yeah it's sort of a family uh, focused book I hadn't thought about that it's a family affair Mm. so one of my favorite bits in this entire book is on page six which is just that little montage sequence of summoning the team where everyone's off doing their own little thing which kind of recalls a similar sequence in alpha flight number one <gasps> also quite keen on you you mentioned alpha flight i love me some alpha flight i love alpha flight but uh yeah it's the bit where they all get the beeping or the pinging in alpha mm-hmm. flight and all interrupting their daily lives so we've got wally off trying to seduce some woman Ugh. with blonde hair which i think we'll come back to again later but yeah the strangeness of wally with blonde hair can't be overstated that's very very weird yeah it's, it's throughout the issue i can only assume they were trying to distinguish him from ralph because ralph has red hair yeah but in the process they make him look exactly like Animal Man. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. And like Barry. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very curious decision. I don't know whether it was actually a mistake or a, a definite strategy, but either way. But we also have Animal there checking out his new costume and in his tighty whities and being absolutely jacked. Which And he's hot. Come on, I've got to admit it. <laughs> he's absolutely sexy. And yeah, he is ripped. Buddy Baker is is not how I picture Buddy Baker when Chaz Truog draws him in his book. Absolutely not. He's, he's sort of just quite sort of lean and scrawny in, uh, in his own time 
title, but here he's yeah he's been clearly working out. But that's the Bart Sears style, you know, it's that sort of proto image thing. Everyone everything's a little bit exaggerated. Yeah. Power Girl flying away from her board meeting in full costume, which I wonder if she actually sat there going through the the meeting minutes in her costume. <laughs> All the fellow board members tripping over her cape as they come into the conference room. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it'd be quite distracting. Yeah, right. So we have Dimitri leaving a restaurant where he somehow managed to find blintzes in Paris, which is quite an achievement, I would think. <laughs> and he looks super suave. I mean, look at him there. He looks He's amazing. He looks ultra cool, no doubt about it. He kind of looks like a Brian Blessed. Are you familiar with Brian Oh, Blessed? yeah, he absolutely looks like Brian Blessed. Oh, wow. So now I'm hearing him in that voice, but with an accent. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I have many go-to thoughts on Brian Blessed for movies, but I can't help in, in a superhero's perspective. It makes me think of Flash Gordon and a Hawkman. Cool. So, you know, Hawkman, sort of a superhero. That could work. Uh, and then we have Metamorpho seemingly watching the Three Stooges arguably on the toilet. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I think that's a... Uh, wow. That's a very uncomfortable I, chair, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I like to think he's on the dog there. So. Well, and Catherine just walks in then, which is a little weird. It'd be a bidet if it's uh, Paris, right? Yeah, she is French, you know. It's very casual <laughs> about these things. And then we have Ralph referring to his junk, as mentioned, which, really? I mean, is that his uh, his one asset that he must bring up at every opportunity? <laughs> well, you know, if, if you've got it and, you know, you, and you're worried about your wife leaving you, you know, maybe you just get desperate to bring it up. And nothing yeah, goes yeah. over better than uh, verbal dick pics with, uh, with your significant <laughs> other. The mind boggles. <laughs> So then we get to the the first mission, which is Captain Atom and Animal Man heading off and where they encounter the Wild Huntsman. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing that really struck me as odd about this, and I had to go over it a few times, was the Wild Huntsman's companion beast. Okay. Generally, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was a cat, the way it moves, the way it jumps, but it has a, a sort of pit bull's face. Hmm. So it's a slightly odd hybrid animal, but uh, it is referred to as a dog by Animal Man as well. He, he You'd think he would know about such things. Now, I, I'm not terribly familiar with the Wild Huntsman, and by terrible familiar, I mean I've seen the who's who page that's about it yeah does he normally have a companion animal is it actually a cat or a dog or, or are you just saying the confusion comes from what's on the page here oh purely from the artwork here okay yeah, gotcha drawn by Sears where yeah if you look at him on page nine that thing moves like a cat mm. looks like a panther and rawr it's kind of a cat noise yeah you're right <laughs> well this could have been a, a discrepancy between the art and the script being written at the same time because mm, Giffen would have given them a plot then they you know Bart goes to draw and Dimatteis goes to script all at the same time so it could be he was thinking cat and the other one was thinking dog that could be the case yeah it could be but you think someone like the wild huntsman would have a being a nordic character would have a wolf rather than a puma or something you know yeah i don't know it's a bit, bit of an odd one but uh so on, well on page c9 here's where on page 10 and 11 it does look kind of like a dog so either way it's yeah. some sort of beast and animal man had a lot of opportunities here to interact with it uh, using his animal powers and what does he do um nothing <laughs> <laughs> he says, I'm Animal Man, all animals love me, really. Yes, that's all he does. <laughs> but he manages to jump on Wild Huntsman, achieve nothing, and that's about it. But that's why I love him. He's completely useless in this situation. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Animal Man is... <sighs> He doesn't have to be useless because there are uh, lots of different things you can do with animal powers. I mean, just look at how versatile Vixen is with her powers. I've actually role-played a game where I had animal powers like Animal Man and and use a lot of different options. So he's got a lot of different things he could do here. But yeah, he doesn't really perform any of them. So I do think that leap, though, is probably him like queuing off of a flea somewhere in the local vicinity, though, because he does in a pretty amazing leap. Yeah, or it could just be from the, the cat-dog thing. Yeah, yeah. He's emulating some sort of power there. Animal powers are very useful and very handy but uh, yeah, he doesn't tend to get much opportunity to use them actually in this book. Right. You have to refer to his own series for that, really. But. Well, even there, he doesn't use a ton of powers. I mean, really, if, and I'm, I'm probably jumping ahead a bit, but if you're going to love Animal Man, you're going to love him for Buddy Baker, not for his powers. Yeah. Sure, sure. 
it's all about the character, not the uh, the superheroics, really. Yeah, absolutely true. I, I do want to say also, I absolutely love the way that Bart Sears draws Animal Man's goggles. His goggles just look so boss. They look so great. I mean, that's not what goggles look like in real life at all, but they look so cool the way he illustrates them. So I just, I've always been a big fan of that. Yeah, they're massively oversized and they look great. I mean, his costume's pretty bizarre and goofy anyway, but he just uh, leans right into that. Yeah, makes me wish he'd stayed around in this series longer. Would have been great to see him as a, like a, like a long term character yeah he's kind of incompatible with the whole ethos <laughs> yeah in several ways yeah but yeah but i like the way that captain atom just stops the fight very quickly yep one of those things where you have an overpowered character on the team and you think why don't they do that all the time you know <laughs> <laughs> What do they need whatever else for? That goes with the argument, why does Superman need a team? Yep, yep. Yeah, someone to talk to. Right. <laughs> yep, so next section we have Power Girl and Rocket Red in Frankfurt, Germany, at another destroyed Nazi base. And they have quite a nice little chat about World War II and their different countries' roles in it. Brings a little extra depth to the issue that isn't necessarily there elsewhere, I think. Well, very much so. The United States is, is a very ethnocentric country anyway. We don't spend enough time thinking about the rest of the world. We're very selfish in that regard. So hearing Dimitri make reference to the fact that his country did not remain unscathed during World War II would have been a good reminder to kids at home that, hey, the Soviet Union, they suffered during World War II and kind of helped remind them that. And it's a testament to Dimitri's character as well that Kara actually apologizes to him. Mm. An apology he warmly accepts. I mean, I didn't think about that. Quite uh, abrasive with other people, but with Dimitri, you know, he has that warmth about him that everyone loves Dimitri, surely. You can't help but love the guy. And I've noticed that more and more as I do this podcast, he's such a great character. And I love also that he doesn't, uh, and I've said this before, the show he doesn't hold anyone else at some sort of super level of awe you know when he's sitting down talking to batman batman is just a guy to him he doesn't see batman as the urban legend that everyone's scared of to him he's just a dude and he sure. treats everyone that way well he's brian blessed and brian blessed gets on with everybody so that's true that's absolutely true and he's been in everything that's good <laughs> So the other notable thing in here is when Kara punches out Rising Sun and she seems to fly at him at about 600 miles an hour on the artwork. So right. How he, how he survived that, I have no idea. If that's her pulling a punch, I'd hate to go all out at him. But Yes, that would be her winging him, I guess, at this point. Yeah, because at this point, she still has basically Superman level abilities. Now, they're, yeah. they're going to fix that in about seven issues or so. But yeah, she is insanely powerful at this point, which I'm glad because in, in the first issue, she didn't really do a lot. So she didn't get to demonstrate how powerful it was. Here, like you said, one punch she gets to take this guy out one punch with two fists at high speed and the panel where she actually connects with rising sun he looks broken yes <laughs> that is a broken man <laughs> he's flying backwards Wham! <laughs> so the idea that she'd be surprised he's in a coma <laughs> seems unlikely so then we get to the, the third and final submission of this which is metamorpho the elongated man in flash on a boat in the english channel uh, heading to dover for a nazi fringe group i really like this fight personally i think that the fight in the water is really it's a great showcase for Metamorpho. You know, he, he's using his powers. He creates this, he gets knocked overboard. He creates this giant scoop uh, out of his mm-hmm. own body to scoop to a tar right out of the water. Then he turns into a whale so he can beat, a beat up one of the guys. Then he turns into sort of like a pseudo shark. All this is because he doesn't think he can swim. So he turns into an animal that can swim. I mean, you really get a sense for how great his powers is. And in the end of the fight, Elongated Man is the one who saves the day, which doesn't use, get to happen all that often because yeah. he entangles to Atara and wraps him up with his own elongated body. Yeah, Metamorpho is used brilliantly. He becomes a a living cartoon basically yeah he's like a roger rabbit or something you know <laughs> 
But I love the bit where Tuatara first flips him off the boat mm-hmm. and Rex falls into water. And as he flips him over the side, his hat flies off. The next panel, you see Tuatara diving after him as the hat continues to fall. And then as Rex rises from the water, he aims himself so he gets the hat back on his head. It's just a, a beautiful little detail there. I never noticed that. That is amazing. That is, I mean, that's clearly Bart Sears having some fun as he draws yeah, this yeah. out. That's super cool. It just emphasizes the cartooniness of Rex there. Yes. Yeah, it also reminded me a bit of Indiana Jones grabbing his hat, as he tends to do, which is a nice comparison because Rex, too, is an archaeologist and adventurer. That's a very good point. Very good. Oh, wow. I wonder if Bart was thinking about that or just did something fun, Three Stooge style. Hmm. I like also in this scene how a elongated man is giving Wally a hard time again about living up to Barry's legacy, because Wally's being totally skeevy, you know, as usual. And Elongated Man, you know, says, you know, something about Barry. And Wally wants Ralph to stop bringing up Barry. Basically, you know, he says, you know, he's kind of tired of it. Well, Ralph puts it right out there. And this is probably the best description of why Ralph gives a Wally a hard time. He says, oh, I didn't realize you were so desperate to forget Barry. But since you decided to inherit his name, you better learn to handle all the baggage that comes with it. And I was like, wow, okay, that's really a good point. I mean, that's a good reason why Ralph rides Wally all the time, especially the skeevy version of Wally, because he's trying to get Wally to live up to Barry's memory, and um, that really works for me. I'm like, oh, I'm down with that. Does this seem like a different Wally to you than the Wally in the, the Flash series at the time? Apart from the hair color, obviously. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I didn't start reading the Flash until issue 49, I want to say, 47, 48, 49, somewhere in there, and I don't honestly remember it all that well. I read those, I read that run, and I thought it was fun, but really my memory of it really kicks in with Mark Wade. Now, I know there's been a lot of talk in the comments on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and please check chime in on those discussions, folks, about how this was a good representation of, of that era of Wally. So I'm not sure. Do, do you have memory of his own series at this time? Well, I remember him being um, a bit more thoughtful and angst-ridden rather than this sort of relentless horn dog they have him as here. He's definitely, right. based, he's, he's got two notes and, and both come out in this issue, which is, as you said, horn dog and money. Bo- both yeah. notes get played very heavily in the early JLE issue. So money was certainly a big thing in the solo series. Yeah. We'll have to see how this plays out uh, and see how, if Wally begins to develop and, and change. And it would be interesting, again, folks, chime in on the comments. Let us know what your thoughts of Wally was at this exact same time when this issue was coming out. He actually seems like the Wally they end up using in uh, the Justice League cartoon. Well, you know, I sort of agree, but sort of don't. The, the Wally in the Justice League cartoon was certainly always interested in success and, and, and women and things like that, but he was never skeevy about it. I mean, he was certainly flirting. He would do everything he could to get a lady's attention, but he wouldn't be like, hey, that chick's super hot. I can't wait to, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever with her. So th- this version a lot more... Well, think about what happened in last issue. I mean, he pretty much crossed the boundaries in sexual harassment last time. Yeah. Whereas yeah. whereas on Justice League Unlimited, he would flirt, and then when he got shot down, he would just be like, hmm, and walk away. He didn't, you know, he didn't uh, he didn't persist. I guess they needed someone in this book to fulfill that Booster Gold role. Yeah, but again, I, Booster and Beetle really were, I, I use the term harmless douchebags, which isn't really a very nice expression, <laughs> but that's basically what they were. They were they were, they were were bros, you know, like, hey, and they, they'd flirt with girls, and then when they got shot down, that was the end of it. You know, it's one thing to ask someone out on a date, flirt with them, and then you get shot down and you walk away. There's nothing really necessarily wrong with that. You put it out there, you got turned down, you moved on, you didn't offend the person. The difference here with this Wally version is he just won't stop. He keeps going. In fact, the way he treats Power Girl is horrible throughout this run. And so I think I think he's crossing a line, whereas Beetle and Booster were just guys who were desperate for a date. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And I might be wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm defending the blue and the gold too much. I don't know. Again, folks, put it in the comments. Let us know. It's also interesting to mention this is also the first time in this uh, the same fight where Metamorpho 
bemoans his missing memories. Uh, he mm. actually mentions he he goes, I don't remember the last five years of my life. This is the first time we'd heard this. And he says, for all I know, I'd be, I might be married and have kids. So sort of foreshadowing a story that's to come soon. Two of my favorite issues of this series, actually. Oh, okay, 11, cool. 11 and 12, the Metamorpho stuff. It's fantastic. Fun. I'm looking forward to getting to them. Yeah, another nice moment here is at the bottom of page 19 where Tuatara tackles Wally and Ralph. And Ralph stretches out of his clothes, but the clothes are not the uh, unstable molecules that you get on Reed Richards. They ah, don't stretch. Okay. In it's... fact, his arms are still short there <laughs> while his torso and his neck stretch out. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Now, it's funny. His costume is you know, unstable or whatever, you know, the DC equivalent of this. But yeah, his suit, his shirt and tie definitely is not. Huh, that's another good detail in there from Bart Sears. Yeah. It's another cartoony little moment, really, where he just emerges from his suit. You know? Yes. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention here was uh, at the bottom of page 21, once the fight is over and they're heading to land Wally is paddling a boat at super speed made out of Rex's body which is exactly like the scene in the first Incredibles movie with Dash and Elastigirl oh that's right yeah that's a good point hmm I would love to say they were influenced by this comic. I doubt it. I mean, it, it yeah. does. Their powers sort of all lend to that sort of thing, but very interesting. Sure. Okay. Well, I, I want to mention here, too, at the end, you know, you get to see Jack-O-Lantern and Owl Woman, who we've seen in previous Justice League International issues, working for the Queen Bee. So I, I mentioned in the recap that the, the Dome, which is the Global Guardian's headquarters, is working for the Queen Bee of Bialya. They don't actually say those words in the issue. However, he does say, my beloved Queen. And last mm-hmm. time we saw them, they were working for Queen Bee in Bialya. So it's fair to put that together. And the interesting thing here too is I, I didn't even think about this until preparing for this episode. There is mind control in both Justice League America, number 26 that we covered at the top of the show, and Justice League Europe, number two, here. And in both cases, the person, the people being mind controlled reference my beloved Queen. So they're yeah, really right. building up the Bialya thing all at the same time. Because when I read these stories, I read them independently. I read the Justice League Europe stuff first, came back and read the Justice League America stuff later, and didn't put together that they're actually happening at the same time so they're building a more cohesive storyline across both books and I thought that was really clever the connection's not explicitly made so that's quite cool yeah here's something else interesting so this issue is packed full of Global Guardians members you know we've talked about that throughout the thing at no point do they actually call them the Global Guardians even at the end Jack-O-Lantern and Owlwoman just reference the dome they don't say Global Guardians so when I first read this comic I had no idea who any of these people were I didn't have a clue I thought they were made up for this issue until later on someone must have pointed out to me that no look in your who's who and I'd look and I'm like oh I forgot about these guys. So I had no idea that the three characters they fought, I didn't know they were former good guys. I had no idea that how Jack-O-Lantern and Owlwoman fit into this because I wasn't reading Justice League International or America. So uh, interesting that if you don't know your DC history, then these are just the bad guy of the week, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. They, they work in that capacity. But if knowing that who they really are does sort of add to it. To be honest, I'm not sure many people still know who the Global God is. <laughs> I don't think they know who the Global God is. <laughs> See, other couple notes for this issue. Hey, where's Wonder Woman? That's weird. Yeah. Isn't she on this team? Hmm. Yeah, oh, well. We don't mention that. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think I might ask that question every month for a while. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I, I did notice was that in, this, in the credits of this issue, you get Keith Giffen on plot and you get Bart Sears on pencils. Whereas in the previous issue, it listed Keith Giffen as plot and breakdowns. And I don't know whether this is just an error in the credits. It looks like a Keith Giffen breakdown to me. I mean, it looks very mm. traditional Justice League.
Justice League. Doesn't look like a Bart Sears kind of thing. And later on, once you get to like issue number four, they do list Keith Giffen as breakdowns again, but not on issue five. It's very hit or miss in the credits of whether Keith's doing the breakdowns or not, which I thought was odd because um, referencing that same Wizard article that Michelle Fifay sent me last month, there's a quote in here from Bart Sears about Justice League Europe. I'll read it real quick. And this is specifically about Justice League Europe and Keith Giffen doing the layouts. Bart said, I'd occasionally do bigger panels than Keith had laid out to emphasize drama or action, but mostly stuck pretty close to his layout. I found that the way he tells stories is pretty straightforward, and if you change too much, you change the tone of the story. That might be fine, but the dialogue was being written at the same time I did the pencils, so I didn't want to screw that up. Besides, these books had such a style and tone, I didn't want to change it. So that suggests that Keith was still doing the layouts, um, which also I think kind of makes sense given the number of butt shots in this issue, uh, Mm -hmm. because Keith loves himself a good butt shot. (laughs) I mean, if you you look back at those Justice League America issues that Ty Templeton was doing, you know, Keith would do the layouts and Ty would draw it and there were butts all the time. So uh, I, I think I think I think Keith did the breakdowns, but that's just my take yeah, on it. I, th- I think you may be onto something there. Yeah. So uh, remember that at home, folks. Butt shots is a hallmark of Keith Giffen. And there's just one more thing I wanted to mention. Now, I, if you've heard me talk about it, you know I love me some digital comics. I'm sitting here with my physical copy of Justice League Europe number two. I'm sitting here with my digital copy from Comixology from the trade paperback collection, and I'm sitting here with the digital copy from the DC Universe app. So I've read this thing on all three, getting ready for this. That's how excited I am about it. But one thing I noticed, and I'm just going to be a little nerdy nerd here for a moment, but the coloring on the digital coloring is not consistent. And when when I read it on Comics All, and I'll post this on our on the Image Gallery so you can see what I'm talking about, folks. When I read the collected edition, which is Volume Five of the uh, Justice League International Collection on Comicsology, the coloring looks great. The coloring is sharp. Everything looks really good. They all colored in the lines, which is what you think would be a kind of a basic trait of a colorist, right? But when you read it on the DC Universe app, it's a single issue. It's not the collected edition. The coloring is actually different, whereas I just assumed it would have been exactly the same since most of this was imported from Comixology. The coloring on the DC Universe app version uh, is really pretty poor. There's a lot of parts where they don't color in the lines. I, I shared a panel here so Matt can see it, and it's also, again, going to be on our website, but like there's parts where there's all kinds of parts where they, they, they miscolored. The blue goes outside the lines. The background colors isn't consistent. Parts of the word balloon are colored over. Do you see what I'm talking about? I do, yeah. That's very odd. You've got sort of the white halo around Sue's hair then. Mm-hmm. Her fingers are bleeding into the arm of the chair. But if, if you look at... Because I've got the uh, the original comic here, yep. issue two. And the actual the lines of the colour that you're looking at there are the same as on the original comic. It's like it's been taken from them and just enhanced. Rather oh. Than, if you look at that... Yeah, you're right. So the, the colouring mistakes are in the original. Wow. Well, it's less pronounced because the colours are less bright. It's all a bit more muted. I didn't notice that. So technically the version on the DC Universe app where the colouring is bad is actually more accurate. But that's the worst of all three of these. So hmm. It just uh, brings out those mistakes a bit more. Yeah, I didn't... Even the word balloon that Ralph's saying is cut off the same way. Interesting. Mm, yeah. well, well, my preference is the, the touched up version on Comixology for the collector edition personally. So that's just my take on it. I'd go with the uh, the original issue. Yeah. I'm more drawn to the more soft muted colors of these rather than the bright ones you get on digital recolorings, but that's just me. Is it? I'm incredibly lazy and don't want to go have to move my 49 long boxes. So <laughs> having it right there on my tablet makes me very happy. Understandable. All right, folks. Well, we have sort of wrapped up the issue there, but now we're going to do something very exciting. I've really been looking forward to this. In fact, this whole pl- this whole thing, this whole having Matt on the show and planning for it for months and months and months now was all hinged around this next segment, something I like to call Character Spotlight. 
which is where Matt is going to get to talk about Animal Man. <laughs> uh, he and I both love this character so much. So Matt's going to talk to us a little bit about Animal Man, not necessarily an origin recap, but more about where he was in the DC universe at the time of the JLI and what kind of impact the JLI had on his career. So why don't you take it away, Matt? Tell us about Animal Man. And no, singing his name never gets old. Okay, so I'm going to take you back uh, a little way here because I think you can't really talk about Buddy Baker in JLE without having a bit of his history there. Okay. But we'll see how we go. So the hero known as Buddy Baker first appeared in Strange Tales 180 way back in 1965. He was a simple man then, given Silver Age animal powers by a Silver Age spaceship exploding in his face in a Silver Age way. (laughs) He stuck around for a couple of years before slipping into comic book obscurity. In the early 80s, he escaped this limbo and became a member of the accurately but insultingly named Forgotten Heroes. He went on to play a minor role in Crisis on Infinite Earths. He was brought into the post-crisis DC universe by Scottish writer 2000 AD luminary and God Amongst Men Grant Morrison in his first work for American Comics. (laughs) He lives just down the road, actually. Hi, Grant. No way. Oh, wow. Well, it's all relative. Um, Morrison's buddy was much more interesting, nuanced and down-to-earth than his pre-crisis self. He was a failed and more charitably D-list superhero who had succumbed to domestic servant life with his wife Ellen and two kids, Cliff and Maxine. Frustrated, he was trying to revive his career with mixed success. His powers led him to his own particular niche as a champion of animals, but he became a vegetarian and would go on to confront vivisectionists, dolphin killers and fox hunters. During the invasion crossover, Buddy starred in by far the best of the tie-in issues shortly before the Dominator's gene bomb detonated. This completely scrambled his powers, driving him literally wild. He was subdued by Booster Gold and Blue Beetle in a rare display of competence. This encounter brought him to the attention of the Justice League after which he appeared in JLI 24 as a membership prospect. Buddy's recruitment to the JLE pretty much happens off camera but is discussed in issue 9 of his solo run. Buddy chats to the Martian Manhunter explaining that he's not an ideal addition to the League as his powers are still scrambled. He tries to mimic the leaping of a rabbit but instead gets the abilities of a rattlesnake or catfish. John is unconcerned. Buddy's importance to the League is mainly symbolic. His value lies in his championing of animal rights, the environment, the planet itself. John, being very green himself in several senses, says, We need someone like you, someone who's fighting for the life of the planet, not simply for personal glory or the American way. And this is why I like Buddy too. He's an everyman, husband, father, a protector of all life. Mm. Soon, after some bizarre metatextual surgery involving the reconciliation of Animal Man's pre- and post-crisis selves, Buddy's powers are fixed. His book then becomes even stranger and more Morrisonian. <laughs> he starts to hurtle inexorably towards weirdness and tragedy, climaxing in his entire family being murdered and Buddy confronting the architect of his misery, Morrison himself. Morrison's Animal Man is one of my favourite series of all time. It's a story of an ordinary family man with humble gifts who finds himself in extraordinary circumstances and ends up unravelling the nature of his reality. Like all comic book characters, he's at the mercy of his creator, but he's uniquely forced to realise this. It's a prototypical Morrison storytelling about stories about stories. All of this made Buddy a very curious addition to the League. John's explanation of his membership makes sense, but the environmental animal rights side of Buddy is never really explored during his time there. He's all but useless and a complete misfit. He leaves the book in issue 12 or ostensibly for personal reasons after the death of his family, but really because the experimental metatextual nature of his book surely always meant he would stand slightly to the left of continuity. He'd never be compatible with a mainstream superhero title. But it was his inclusion on the League that sparked my interest in Animal Man. All I knew about his book previously was the Brian Bolland cover art that really leapt out from the racks, even if the hyperreal style really freaked me out as a kid. <laughs> you have to wonder whether Giffen and Dimatteis really knew what they were getting into when they recruited this guy in the goofy costume with the subpar, barely functioning powers. But I'm really glad they brought him in. In my home office, where I am right now, there's precisely one comic book cover framed on the wall, and it's an issue of Animal Man. It's all because of JLE. 
Wow, that's powerful. So what what issue, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, issue five, Coyote Gospel. I could totally that was that was going to be my guess. So absolutely it blew my mind when I first read that one, and it's a yeah a really pivotal work in my comic reading history. It sort of took me into that whole vertigo side of things. In uh in my own personal office, I have a whole bunch of Firestorm action figures. Not surprising. I have Justice League International action figures, and then I have like some Alpha Flight stuff. But for the most part, I don't have a lot of other stuff in here. Uh, but there, I very specifically have an Animal Man action figure on the shelf from the 52 line, which is a fantastic action figure. I came across Animal Man reading Justice League Europe. I knew he was on the shelves. I didn't know anything about the character and read Justice League Europe. I want to say probably issue number one would have been it, but either way, I ran out and picked up number nine, which is the one where uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, John Jones is there and they're installing the teleporters. I'm pretty sure it's that issue, right? Yeah, that's right. And the issue's a hoot. And I read it and I was like, wow, this is wild. This is really fun. It made you think. And so I started picking up from there and I had no idea what I was in for. My my poor wife, (laughs) I bored the heck out of her just uh, two nights ago, we were sitting here talking and I have these Animal Man trades that I picked up recently. And so I start talking to her about it and she looks at me, she's like, you know I don't care what you're talking about, right? And I'm like, yeah, I know, I'm still going to talk. So I started talking to her about it and explaining the deep stuff. And I, I don't want to say too much. I mean, you know, we talked about it a little bit in the recap there, folks. If you haven't read it, wow, you got to read it. But I started showing her towards the end, what happens at the end where Animal Man, you mentioned he confronts Morrison. I showed her that stuff. I showed mm-hmm. her him outside of the comic book panel. I showed him, you know, looking at the audience, all that and she suddenly got interested she wasn't going to read it i mean she's not going to waste her time reading comic books that's just for kids right but she she's like wow that's really interesting that's really deep that they did that in a comic book i'm like yeah yeah it is so uh wow such a great character and you mentioned the everyman I mean, he's, he's sort of Jimmy Stewart. I mean, he really is. Mm. He's the Jimmy Stewart of the comic book world, which is the, a regular guy who has found himself in stir- circumstances way beyond his control. And he's way in over his head, but he still doesn't give up. And uh, I love that about Buddy. I mean, the initial thing was supposed to be just a four-issue limited series. Right. It became extended. And that's where the Coyote Gospel came in and kind of changed the whole course of that series into something much, much weirder and wilder. So I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite series. And if we didn't have Animal Man, I don't know that we would have had the Grant Morrison we all know today. No, everything he writes comes back to Animal Man. Yeah. In some ways. He's, he's, I'm sure he's been um, on record as talking about how it's all a, one continuity from there in certain ways, or it's the same themes that crop up and it threads through everything. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, you know, after Morrison leaves the book, you, you get a Peter Milligan run, who I struggled with for a while because they did some more horrible things to the family. Basically, any writer that comes along and does something bad to Ellen or Maxine or Cliff, I get kind of upset about. But Milligan, he knew what he was doing. And by the end of the story, I'm like, oh, this was great. And then and, you know, they had a lot of different writers on those books. Those were good. The Jeff Lemire series was very, very good from the New 52 about Animal Man. Mm-hmm. But the guys doing the cartoons, specifically the DC Nation shorts, took Animal Man in a completely different direction. Because oh, yeah. how do you take what Morrison has sort of laid out, the template, and all the subsequent writers, how do you put that into a kid's cartoon? Well, you can't. There's just no way. So you go the complete opposite direction where you make him a complete goofball, which is where the whole Animal Man stuff comes from. And you've, you've got to be annoyed by that by now, folks. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go out to Google and Google Animal Man uh, DC Nation. And you'll watch some of these shorts, and they are a laugh riot because they, they I think the writers found themselves in a position where, like, how can we make this character work? We can't use his comic book version. And so they came up with their own goofy, hilarious version that I love just as much. And he's voiced by Weird Al Yankovic, I believe. You are, right? d- you've got to be kidding. Seriously? I think so. Might want to double check that, but. Okay. 
I definitely will. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I was watching some of those just before I spoke to you, and uh, yeah, they're great. They're great. It's the same gag every time. Oh yeah, absolutely. But delightful. All right, well, I think that's going to do it for the character spotlight, and I think there's only one thing left to say on that, wouldn't you, Matt? I believe so, yeah. Animal Man! Since we're being goofy and funny, maybe it is time for us to cover the... Plahaha Award. This is where we are going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Matt will pick a moment, and only one of them will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, Matt, you're the guest, which is unfortunate for everyone at home. They've had to listen to your not-Scottish accent. Uh, anyway, oh, I do apologize. <laughs> work harder on that next time. Eat some haggis, damn it. Anyway, what would you like to recommend for the Bwahaha Award? Well, I'm very torn because I do love Rex's hat flying off on page 18. Mm-hmm. Flying off and being caught again. The Indiana Jones moment. But... I'm going to have to give it to Animal Man. Really? On page 11, after Captain Atom zaps the Wild Huntsman, Animal Man says, Hey, I didn't know you could do that kind of stuff. And then in very small writing, Why didn't you do it sooner? (laughs) I think it's a lovely moment, and it reminds me of Okoye's great moment in um, Infinity War. Why was she up there this whole time? Right. Okay. That's good. I like that. It's a little aside, and it's the one bit bit of Animal Man you could argue is that sort of Morrison meta text where he's talking outside of the story, like... Why does this guy not just sold everything? <laughs> right. Okay. I like that. That's a good one. Mine, I went for sort of the call and response things that I tend to like, where earlier on in the issue, when Captain Adam, a elongated man, and Sue are talking, you know, elongated man knows, knows twitches, and Captain Adam says, will you stop with the nose twitching? And he goes, this is my trademark. And besides, Sue thinks it's adorable. And then Sue says, that was while we were dating, hun. That adorableness wore off about five years ago, which is cute. But then there's a callback later when they're uh, in the English Channel, and they're, they're leaving and Ralph's nose is twitching and Metamorpho goes, oh, you stopped the nose twitching. He says, my wife thinks it's cute. And then he's, Flash goes, that's not what she told me. So I just thought that was a cute call and response how you get the joke twice. I think I think that's nice and I think anything involving Ralph and Sue is always quite charming and uh, yeah, a bit more appealing. I'd, I'd be willing to defer to you on this one. It is a tough one because I, I'm fine giving the award to Ralph and Sue or Animal Man. I love all of them, but I I do like winning because that's sort of like in my nature. So I'll, t- I'll take the win. So. God damn it. <laughs> Congratulations, Ralph and Sue. Please wear your Bwahaha Award with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Well, Matt, I need you to do me a favor, if you don't mind. There are Global Guardians members dropping like flies around here at the embassy. You even look at one of them funny and they fall into a coma. I would really appreciate if you could hang out here for a bit and watch over these folks. Who knows? Maybe you'll get lucky. Maybe Godiva will pass out in your arms or something. Okay, I would want to take the Global Guardians to task anyway for not having a Scottish member. So uh, they could at least have Super Grand, you know. Perfect. Uh, now, don't worry, Matt. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And while Matt's taking care of this, folks, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. Alright folks, before we get into your feedback, just a little bit of news. Over on the DC Universe app, that's DC's new subscription platform with video and comics, I'm so excited about the changes they've made. They have loaded a ton of Giffen DiMatteis JLI stuff, you've got to check it out. For the main JLI book, you've got pretty much every single issue from the Giffen DiMatteis era. There's only a few they haven't digitized yet. For Justice League Europe, they've got issues 1 through 13 over there. For Justice League Quarterly, they've got the entire series. And if you remember later on, the formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League, 
League. Both of those are out on the platform as well. And the entire runs of Justice League 3000 and Justice League 3001. So lots and lots and lots of fantastic Giffen and Demetrius chocolatey goodness out there. Go out to the DC Universe app. If you're not already subscribing, I can't recommend it highly enough. I absolutely love it. Just another reminder, if you are going to be at the Boston Fan Expo in August, please let me know. I'm going to be there. I would love to hang out with some other JLI fans. There's going to be a whole bunch of folks from the Fire and Water Podcast Network and friends of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And I always love meeting other fans of these comics. So please let me know. And just a reminder, for the Bwahaha Award, if you want to review an entire list of the Bwahaha Award winners, unbelievably, Chris Lewis from our UK Embassy put together a spreadsheet. And all of that is out there. We've got links in the show notes if you want to go look at all of the winners. All right folks. And I remember, as we get into the feedback, we want you to be part of the show. Get out on the social media. Use our hashtag PoundFWPodcasts. On Twitter, you can find us at JLI Podcast. On Facebook, it's Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. And of course, leave comments on our website. As I said, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. Remember, when you're posting your comments, if you're outside of the United States, please let me know. We'll assign you the appropriate embassy. As we go through the feedback here, you'll find out that we have a lot of international listeners for this podcast. And it's good to know too, because if you're international, we have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews. Speaking of which, folks, I cannot express to you my disappointment here. Seriously, people, there are no new iTunes reviews this past month? That almost never happens with this show. Don't you guys understand how fragile my ego is? Now, I've seen the download numbers on these shows. I know how many of you are out there in earbud land. Now, come on, get on the stick, folks. Please leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't yet. It just takes a second. Anything you can do would be appreciated. And it really, it helps, again, raise the profile the show and bring in even more fans of JLI and really just grow this community. And if you don't, I'm going to come over to your house and fix all the coloring in your JLI comics with a couple of colored Sharpies. So just saying. All right, folks, we're going to get into your feedback. Now, these are comments pulled from our website, email, social media, just pulling bits and pieces, because if I were to try and cover all of this, we would be here another two hours. These comments come specifically from the most recent episode covering Justice League International number 25 and Justice League Europe number one with my guests, Derek Crabb and Michael Bailey. Our first email comes from someone new who we haven't heard from before. And see, folks, I told you the community's growing. Patrick McMullen. He says, thank you so much for an awesome podcast. It's a pure joy reading along with you and your guests each month. Justice League International is my all-time favorite comic series. I remember picking up the first issue at a 7-Eleven back in the day and instantly falling in love with the book. Going back and rereading with you and the Bwahaha crew, I've been reminded just how awesome Justice League Europe is, too. Thanks again for your fantastic podcast. And then he goes on to talk about how his dream would be a Blue and the Gold series. He even gave us some fan art, which was awesome. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's great to hear from you. Then we heard from Ryan Daly from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Does shows such as Batman Nightcast, Cheerscast, and many more. Uh, he has specifically addressed Michael Bailey's comments where we were comparing Justice League Europe with West Coast Avengers. And Ryan says, yes, the first year of the ongoing West Coast Avengers was a bit sluggish and a chore to get through. However, the second year of the book is awesome. And Ryan gave a whole bunch more commentary there. And thanks so much, Ryan, for leaving a big comment about West Coast Avengers, which is not what this comic was that we reviewed. Thanks for staying on point, buddy. Anyway, uh, then we heard from David Ace Gutierrez, executive producer of Pod Dylan and owner and operator of the Katana Banana. David writes, like Michael Bailey, Justice League Europe was my chance to get into the league at the ground floor. I came into Justice League with issue number five. I'd skipped the Justice League Detroit era, and I missed Legends altogether, but once I picked up Justice League number five, I was all 
all in. Regarding Justice League Europe, he says, I love this team, and being a Wonder Woman fan, I was very psyched to see her join. Thanks for nothing on the Wonder Woman front, Justice League creative team, but it gave me an appreciation of Animal Man, it put my Flash on a Justice League team, and it had a very shiny Captain Atom. Well, uh, David, I think it's fair to say you really shouldn't blame the Justice League Europe creative team for the lack of Wonder Woman, as we'll talk about in just a little bit. Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Fire & Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as the JLU cast, Superman Movie Minute, and others. Chris writes in and says, I was wondering if you guys were going to mention the earlier Caitiff story in Action Comics. When I bought this Justice League International issue, I felt more deja vu than I did with Justice League Europe number one because I knew it was pretty much reading the same story over again. I did like the art much, much better in Justice League International because I really disliked this period of Giffen's art. I'll freely admit that Justice League Europe quickly became my favorite of the two books at the time as JLA became more jokey. I love Bart Sears' art back in the day, can still appreciate his talent today, unlike other artists at the same time that haven't aged well in my mind. He's not quite the roid rage Bart Sears just yet here. He goes on to say, yes, I love Captain Adam's mutton-chopped mullet. I even did a pastel portrait of the Captain in Bart Sears' style, trying to get that shiny mullet look. And he goes, I noticed Michael Bailey didn't bring that up. I know he's mullet-sensitive. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Then we heard from Lewis. He goes, I had some familiarity with the Super Friends as a child. When I first started collecting comics, it was with the Justice League Europe and Justice League America of this period. And he says, before I grasped the heritage of Jay Garrick and Barry Allen, Wally West was the Flash to me, and it was first introduced to the Dibneys in this book and the Just League Europe, which may be why I feel Elongated Man is greater than Plastic Man. And you better believe that Power Girl left an impression, regardless of what origin she's given. I don't think she ever really needed the Superman family when she's got history with the JLI. And then he goes on to say, when the Big Seven was restarted under Grant Morrison, I definitely appreciated the respect given to the team, but I didn't appreciate the snobbery towards the JLI-era heroes. You know, Lewis, you're not wrong there. Once Morrison went on JLA, it's like the comic reading community turned on the Justice League Internet national area it's very strange they just everyone kept talking about it just being jokey and was very negative about it and it took poof a good 10 or 15 years till they finally came back around and started to show love again towards just league international very it was a very disappointing period as a jli fan but i'm glad things have turned around now then we heard from Tim Price, who's a past guest of the show. And if you remember, Tim and I have this special relationship where Tim writes these enormously long comments on the show, and I read them to my daughter and help her go to sleep at night. So, so far, I've read this comment six times to my daughter, and she hasn't made it past the first paragraph. So, thank you, Tim. Uh, Tim says, in addition to uh, the Blooster, meaning Blue Beetle, getting a chance to bring the funny to this issue, they both got to show their fighting chops for the first time in a while, especially Blue Beetle. He was landing some serious hits on KDF in this issue, which is awesome. Normal human taking down a vampire. That's serious fighting skill. But this story is heart-wrenching. That final splash page says it all, except Kadif is face up. If it was suicide, I would think diving straight into the pit face down would be natural. Face up implies he came to the edge, tried to catch his balance, but failed and fell. In my head, Kadif obviously commits suicide, but with the art, there's a glimpse of doubt. I'm probably overthinking it. And he says, Ralph and Sue are just the best. They tease each other like a healthy couple would. And then he repeats the joking uh, in, from Justice League Europe where he, they ask why they married each other. And it's really cute. And uh, Tim says, oh, Ralph, you're awesome. It even makes me give him a break for his mild flirting with Catherine Colbert. And he says, number one, can you blame him for flirting with Catherine Colbert? Shag says no. And number two, he says, Sue gets Ralph back eventually in regards to another Justice League Europe cast member. Which, yes, we started to see this issue where she's <laughs> making Ralph feel jealous about Captain Adam. And Tim goes on to say, I don't remember seeing Bart Sears' artwork before this comic, but I was sold immediately. Another great artistic find in this Justice League era. Sheesh, there's so many. For a series that got maligned for being the joke league, it got so many fantastic artists. 
you know, that's another great point, Tim. I mean, going back to what we were talking about just a second ago about how they were made fun of the JLI years later. But, man, how many great artists came out of this book? Seriously, I can't believe this book was ever made fun of. Then Tim chimes in, and this goes to specifically the earlier point about Wonder Woman not being in a league. Tim says, I heard Keith Giffen at a panel at Heroes Con 2018. He gave a pretty good rant that George Perez and the Wonder Woman team agreed to let Wonder Woman be on the Justice League Europe and then change their minds, saying, we don't want you making fun of her. Of course, I always felt the JLI had fun with the characters, not making fun of them, but there you go. Then we heard from Gord Tolton from the Canadian Embassy. He actually recognized the theme music we play for Justice League Europe, which is Winter Games by David Foster. Good call, Gord. Then we heard from my buddy Jose Rivera, because I had no idea this issue was a sequel or a redo of the Giffen story from back in the day. As for Justice League Europe, it's been a long time since I've read the entire run, but I'm looking forward to your coverage. And he says, I forgot Catherine Colbert is such an important part of this book. I'm even more stunned we can say she's had an appearance outside of the comics thanks to a cameo in Season 3 of Young Justice. That's awesome, and I can't believe we failed to mention that last time. Yes, she has appeared in Season 3 of Young Justice, which you can find in the DC Universe app. That's so awesome. So happy she's still around. Then we heard from Mike Kramer. He says, For Justice League International number 25, at first I was never a big fan of this issue. It wasn't that it was a bad story by any means, it just felt slightly off for what I've been getting used to from JLI. On the other hand, I just came to a realization that this was meant to do two things. First, it gives the audience a chance to come down from the hilarity of the last two issues and get ready for the next few issues. Also, Blue Beetle has really been a goofy character the last few issues. He's bickered with Hawkman, the horrendous flirting with Wonder Woman. Beetle has just not been shown in the best light. In this issue, however, Beetle comes across Cross is a far more serious and competent. Yes, he's fixated on his CD collection, but when he and Booster are fighting Caitiff, he's effective in the fight. And after things have ended, Beetle is the one who has the not now face when Booster suggests taking Caitiff's corpse back to the lab. Showing Beetle in this way may be Giffen a Demetrius's way of reminding the readers that, hey, this guy's not just a goof. He's as good a fighter as anyone else on the team, which of course sets us up for what comes next. Then we heard from Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy. He does the Two Dangers for Girl blog. He says, I read that Action Comics Caitiff story. That was a great period for the Superman books as Julie Schwartz wound down after a long tenure as editor and gave us loads of interesting, fun short stories by veterans and newbies. Caitiff was an interesting one-off, and that's how he remains even after Booster and Beetle's focus. As you say, it was basically the same story, but so very well done. Then he says, uh, Shag's memory was correct. Justice League Europe was partially commissioned as a sop to fans who didn't connect with the humor, action balance of the mother title. The distinction wasn't as sharp as expected, but the comic was great. And then he speaks about Bart Sears. He goes, Power Girl was so distinctive that I wonder if he was basing her on someone, then adding veins, like Denise Crosby, perhaps. You know what? I can kind of see the connection with Denise Crosby, and this is two years after Star Trek Next Generation, so she's in the public consciousness quite a bit. So yeah, could very well be. They heard from Bradley Null. He goes, this action figure discussion was filling me with weird memories. My pal Z, who was the booster to my beetle growing up, Z learned to sew so he could make custom Mago costumes for this era of the Justice League. He even made me a blue beetle costume in the Mago size. And he goes on to give a lot more detail of that. That's awesome, Bradley. Then we heard from Max Traver. He says, congrats on a triumphant debut for the long-awaited new format. Even though it did come complete with irredeemably creepy Wally West, we still have ample cause to rejoice. Ralph and Sue forever. Totally agree. Agree, Max. Then we heard from Rob Kelly, my podcasting life partner over on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Rob and I do shows such as Aquaman and Firestorm together. We also do a Who's Who podcast together. And then Rob has a whole bunch of his own shows as well. Rob says, very fun episode, and I remember being really excited at the notion of a second Justice League title. I don't think it 
ever quite lived up to this promise, but at that age, more Justice League was better Justice League. Then we heard from Adam Ackerman, who goes by Centaurin from our Denmark embassy. He says, interesting thing with the term ugly American. It comes from a book called The Ugly American, but in the book, it also has the opposite meaning of what has come to mean. The ugly American in the book is the most heroic-like person. The engineer Homer Atkins, whose, quote, calloused and grease-blackened hands always reminded him that he was an ugly man, end quote. That is, he was an ugly American because he was one of the few Americans in the book to work and understand the local peoples and not worry about looking proper. Yet now, what he called the polished people are what we call the ugly Americans. Hmm, very interesting. I didn't realize that. And then Adam goes on to write us some haikus, which, of course, he does. He's been writing them lately. We get one for each issue that we covered last month. He says, Coons cleanup, phone call. Repo vamp in the sewers. Kadif was the last. And then embassy setup, deja vu all over again, a mind-controlled crowd. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. Then we heard from Damian Whiter from our English embassy. He says, I really enjoy the podcast as usual, particularly reminiscent of how I used to get my comics at the newsagent. American comics would arrive monthly in English newsagents, so every comic with the same cover date would arrive at the same time. That meant I always got JLA and JLE on the same day. And then later on, he says, Kadif came off as a very lonely, damaged character, and I'm sure there were deliberate correlations between his experience of science in the, in the late 1980s anti-vivisection movement. Animal experimentation was beginning to take over from weapons development as the evil scientist trope, Animal Man issues 1 through 4 being a prime example. I was also impressed that DiMatteis was able to show that Beetle and Booster were not only self-centered, money-grabbing jerks, but also humane and sensitive. This is what makes the JLI so real. The people you laugh and joke with are also the people you deal with the real stuff with as well. Thank you, Damien. Then we heard from Luke Dobb, the most dastardly creative man on Earth, regarding Justice League International number 25. He says, I really love this issue, especially the shift in tone. It was poignant watching Booster and Beetle, the jokesters of the JLI, be thrown into such a tragic story. Thanks, Luke. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald. Last issue, I had mentioned how Caitiff, uh, we were trying to figure out the origin of the phrase, and I mentioned the clan Caitiff existed in Vampire the Masquerade. Liz says, yes, Caitiff is a clan in the old canon of Vampire the Masquerade. It's probably from this comic, as the creators of the RPG were big fans of pop culture. Liz goes on to give a lot more examples of that. Then later on, regarding the Justice League Europe, Liz says, I can't wait till they face their greatest foe, the great and dangerous beef eater. Yes, I said that with a straight face. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. Then we heard from Diablo Frank from the Roll Spine Podcast Network, where he has a lot of shows, including Idlehead of Diablo, which is a Martian and Manhunter podcast. Frank says, was surprised to hear my name on the JLI podcast, especially up for an award. That's how quickly I forgot my own gag. Yes, last episode, Frank won a Double Stuff Award for a April Fool's Day prank, and I can't believe he'd already forgotten because that 46 pound box he had delivered to me ended up throwing out my back so thanks so much for that frank they were from dave walker who used to host the flash legacies podcast and also he and i used to appear on the two true freaks who true freaks podcast about doctor who dave says hey i was wondering something mike made mention of something akin to how wally's womanizing ways were well known way back when but were they a thing before this i never had the opinion that he was like this in his own series but i don't know if that's my dodgy memory or rose colored glasses based on what comes after our buddy siskoid from the fire and water podcast Network chimed in with a link to the Many Loves of Wally West, which is over on the Hyperborea page, which is a uh, adjacent link to the Speed Force blog. And Dave's appreciative of the link, but then he says, as far as Wally goes, not sure any of his interactions with the opposite sex before this were as creepy, though. Hmm. Interesting. You know, folks, chime in on the feedback. Wally West, we know he's a womanizer back in the day, but was his interactions with uh, ladies as skeevy as they've been in just like Europe, or did they take it to another level? I'm curious to hear what you folks think. Then we heard from Chris Lewis from the UK Embassy. Remember, he's the one who put together our 
our Blahaha Award spreadsheet. He goes, hey, Shag, thanks so much for rewarding the Blahaha Award spreadsheet with a Double Stuff Award last episode. Compiling all that data might have seemed like madness, but it was a great excuse to go back and re-listen to old episodes, so it's really a labor of love. Then he goes on to say, using the embassy transporter to beam yourself into my house in the dead of night, creep into my bedroom, and slip the Double Stuff Award into my slumbering hand might have been an entirely faithful recreation of the final scene of JLI number 12, but it's also creepy and intrusive, and this message is to let you know that the restraining order is now in effect indefinitely. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I'll bear that in mind next time I sneak into your house. Chris also drew an interesting comparison between Nort and this creature from an old Doctor Who episode from the 1980s called uh, Terminus, and in that episode there's this giant dog-like creature called the Garm, and uh, <laughs> he, showed, he drew the comparison between Nort and Garm, and it just cracked me up as an old-school Doctor Who fan. This absolutely uh, thrilled me, so thanks so much, Chris. Really appreciate it. Then we heard from Bill Beer, because uh, the JLE comic was great also. My favorite issue is the team trying to learn French. <laughs> yeah, Bill. Actually, you're not the only person to mention the French lesson in the feedback this month. I know a lot of people are looking forward to our coverage of that issue, and I can't wait. Then we heard from Barry Reese, who is a published author and one of my past collaborators on the Ultraverse Network. Barry says, I actually like Justice League Europe better than the main book for quite a while. I just wish they'd mixed in a few more European members. Yeah, you're not wrong about that, Barry. And now I just want to say thanks to some folks who sent us some nice messages and gave us some nice shout-outs. Uh, folks like Sphinx Magoo, Isaac Espenson, Joe Tonello, Phil Ryan, Chris Lucido, Grabs Granite, Old Desert Hymnal, and Rob Williams of the Generation X-Wing Podcast. Thanks so much, folks. We really appreciate your support. Now, I want to take an opportunity to award another Double Stuff Award this one is for people who go above and beyond to do something uh, regarding the JLI or someone who does something to help promote the show or just because I like them. So this one's going to go out to my buddy Dr. Ange of the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and also part of the Legion Super Loggers. Dr. Ange, and he did this a while back, and I should have mentioned it last month and I failed to. He got a copy of Justice League Europe number one signed by GMD Mateus at the Plastic City Comic Con back in 2018, and he nailed that to me, which was so incredibly thoughtful. Thank you so much, uh, Ange. I really appreciate it. It is a valued piece of my collection. I should have mentioned it last month, and I'm sorry I didn't. But thank you again, Ange. I hope you enjoy your Double Stuff Award. Now, folks, this is the part of the show where we thank everyone who shared the Just League International Blahaha podcast on their social media timeline, meaning Facebook or Twitter. This is a very long list of names. However, these are folks showed their support and promoted the show and helped our community grow. And so it's important that we recognize these individuals. A lot of these folks, it's the only time they're going to get mentioned on the show. So this time out, we're looking at over 75 names of people who helped promote last episode. And you could be on this list next month. All you got to do is retweet tweet the episode or share it on Facebook. So our thanks to Bama Racks at Radicable, Between the Pages, Boosterific.com, the Bowling Green State University Batman Conference, Brad Meltzer. Yeah, that's right. I just said Brad Meltzer, the New York Times bestselling author, helped promote the JLI podcast. Thanks, Brad. Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Coffee and Comics, Cosmic Cat Comics, Craig R. MacD at Canadian Geek, Dale Russell, Darren and Ruth Sutherland from Rad Adventures, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. David Ace Gutierrez, Debbie Rangel, Derek Crabb from History of Comics on Film and Fanholes, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine, Dylan A. Lange, Frederico Hernandez, Jeff Messer and the Geek Brain Popcast, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Green Lantern HG, Gus Casals, Ivan Cudley, Jack Rocha, Jared Albrecht, the Yard Sale Artist, Jason Pope, Jay Powers, Jeff Pollier, Jeffrey Brown, Jose Rivera, Kichi Baker, Con L., Chris Dados, Kyle Benning, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Liz Ann Oswald, Long Box of Darkness, Martin Kogan, Matthias McBride, Matt Ev, Matthew Cody, Max Romero and It's Plastic Man and the Mirror Factory, Mara at Ocean Rage M, Michael Kramer, Michelle Fife, 
Nuno Darte, Old Desert Hymnal, Pablo Lamothe, Paul Hicks, Paul Kian, Randy at Dark Skin Is, Randy Caldwell, Read More Comics, Richard Field, Rob Kelly, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Daly, Scott X, Sean Ross in Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Slangword Scott, Tim Price, Tom Beach, Warlord Thanos Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, Zumia Kanori, and Zeb Oswald. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is fantastic. If I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry, folks. It's probably Derek Crabb or Michael Bailey's fault. If so, just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. And please keep those cards and letters coming. Go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post there. Or you can go on Facebook, again, just League International Ball Haha Podcast. On Twitter, we're JLI Podcast. And our email is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Derek and Mike for helping me cover JLI number 25 and JLE number 1. And thanks to you, the listeners, for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Sean and Matt together in the same embassy. ago, a crashing wave of light erupted across the DC universe. A multicolored spectrum of energy bathed the cosmos in a war of light. Rage clashed against passion. Hope sought to stifle fear. Greed to choke out compassion. And in the middle of it all, the will to keep going and fight for all. Now this war has come to the surface of our planet, because while the light fights, the darkness rises. Hero, villain, friend, foe, family. Across the universe, the dead have risen. And it's going to take every available podcaster to fight back. In 2016, we covered the dawn of the Justice League with Justice League Year One. In 2017, we soaked in the seminal justice. Last year, we threw it back to the Silver Age. But this year's JLMA podcast event covers an event that knows not the boundaries of death itself. JLMA covers Blackest Night 
in celebration of the event's 10-year anniversary. Our coverage begins on April 30th with the podcast of OA and proceeds through the entire month of May with Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, The Idlehead of Diablo, The Fire and Water Podcast, Head Speaks, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Longbox Crusade, Waiting for Doom, Task Force X, The Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, The Dr. DC Podcast, The Birds of Prey Podcast, Justice's First Dawn, and ends with the Lantern Cast. So join us this May, because across the DC Universe, the dead have risen. Where will you be? Okay, folks, we are back from break, and yes, it does appear that the JLI teleporter has brought Sean and Matt together for us, thankfully. First, Sean, I sincerely appreciate you appearing on this show. I really, really do. I gave you a lot of flack in the first half of the show, and it was well-deserved, but it really meant a lot to me for you being here. So please, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs? Thanks for having me, man. I, I love the show. I know I gave you some grief at the beginning, but I'm a big fan. Uh, you can find me at Pulp to Pixel. Uh, we do a couple great shows. We have Secret Wars and Beyond, where we cover every Secret Wars miniseries that Marvel has released. We've done the beautiful flower that is one, the turd in a bag that is two, <laughs> and we're getting to three, which is the great epic run by Hickman and uh, Isad Ribic, which is great. We also have a Squadron Supreme cast show that's going on right now that covers that seminal miniseries from Mark Grunewald and Bob Hall. And we have an amazing What If cast where a bevy of guests join Dr and just talk about their favorite issue of What If, wherever it may fall. It is so good, too. It really is. Yeah, so I'm excited. So yeah, we're at Pulp to Pixel. You can find me on Twitter at Secret Wars and Beyond. And I hope people, you know, if they like this, what they hear, they check us out. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much, Sean, for being here. Now, Matt, I really, really appreciate you being on the show. This is the first time we've ever actually spoken. So I was very nervous. I was afraid you might sound like the Scottish Urkel. I had no idea. <laughs> that reference might be lost across the pond. But either way, I sincerely appreciate it. This has been an absolute blast, Matt. I'm so glad you were here. Why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find more of you on the interwebs? Oh, thank you, Shag. Uh, you can find me over on Twitter under at Guanoman, uh, as in at Man. <laughs> yes, it's partly comics, partly political ranting. You can also find my comics blog at Ultron is My Elvis, if you just search for that, and that's on Facebook. It's also on Blogspot, although it's been retired for a while. I haven't done much because I'm fundamentally lazy. <laughs> And you can also find me hanging around the uh, Fire and Water Geek Fitness Group sometimes, telling exciting stories of the things I pick up and put down. I, I got to tell you, folks, the Fire and Water Geek Fitness Group, I didn't know what to expect from that, but it's been a huge, huge support for me in my fitness goals. And reading what Matt does is absolutely astonishing, from the deadlifts to doing yoga in front of a dinosaur skeleton. I mean, just some of the coolest stuff. So it's definitely worth checking out there. Uh, Fire and Water Geek Fitness is it's a Facebook group. And Matt, uh, seriously, man, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for doing the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Shag. This is my uh, first podcast ever, and uh, I've been very nervous, but you've been a very gentle hand to guide me through. <laughs> I just wanted to say, when I first started listening to podcasts, the first two comics podcasts I ever listened to were Michael Bailey's Views from the Long Box and Hey Kids Comics, and for some reason you kept cropping up on both of those, so you've always <laughs> been there at the core of my comics podcast listening. And since Leyland and Bailey won't return my calls, then, you know, you'll do in a pinch. So thanks for having me. <laughs> 
Well, I'm terribly sorry that your podcasting history has been tied up with me. Uh, there's much better podcasters out there for you to listen to, so I probably ruined you forever. My apologies to everyone in Scotland for that. All right, that's going to do it, folks. Come back next month when we cover Justice League America, number 27, and Justice League Europe, number 3. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You'll just have to wait and find out next month. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Sean. And I'm Matt. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make make something something of it? it? series of blood-curdling screams and one running refrigerator repairman later <laughs> and we learned that beetle stabbed life on dick sorry that's sorry okay. i gotta redo that whole thing my yeah what was that kicked. it was siri it just kicked on apparently whatever i was just saying told yeah. it to look up the sweet life on deck of zach and cody <laughs> that is hysterical <laughs> all of a sudden oh, i looked at it like what the sweet life what the hell <laughs> All right, sorry. Let me do this again. Uh, do you want me to go back to blood curdling cream or blood curdling screams? I'll do. That. You okay. pick up wherever you feel comfortable. I'll, I'll fix it. Okay. But I, I really want to use that as a stinger now. Where it's like sweet life on deck. <laughs> that would be great, man. Yeah, that's that's really weird. I don't know what Siri thinks I'm into, but it's okay. I got it. Well, Zach and Cody. I've got. I, ha- I had a 19 year old and uh, and a 13 year old. So believe me, we've watched some Zach and Cody in this house. <laughs> Stop right there. All right, carry on with your banking transactions, citizens.